Greetings listeners, Craig here with a brief message before you listen to the podcast that you've clicked on. This is being released during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labour of the writers and actors currently on strike, the thing you're about to listen to us talk about wouldn't exist. We stand with those on strike and support their desire to be recognised for the wonderful work they do. Now please enjoy our discussion. Hi there, this is David Hayden Jones, the actor who plays Mr. Ketch on Supernatural, and you are listening to Kneel Before Pod. Kneel Before Blog presents Kneel Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that may or may not have changed the universe. I'm your host Craig and we're here to talk about The Flash again, but not the same Flash stuff we talked about before. We talked about the TV show, the animated film. Now we're talking about the live action film that finally released after a very, very long time in development. And joining me for this is possibly the Aaron of this universe or possibly the Aaron of another universe or another timeline. I don't know. But Aaron, which timeline are you from? Are you from this one? I am from the timeline in which you can't get anybody to talk about The Flash anymore because they're sick of talking about it, so you're left with me. That seems somewhat accurate. There's a timeline for everything, it seems. So The Flash movie, that thing came out eventually after us joking for years that it never existed. Remember when we used to say comments like that about New Mutants and then that finally came out and couldn't do that anymore? But The Flash was still stuck in hell. So we could make fun of that for never coming out. And now it's out. Now what are we going to make fun of for never coming out? Oh, there'll be something. You pick any Star Wars property that's had something cancelled and reinstated and cancelled again. There were loads of them. Yeah, that's true. Star Wars is famously... We'll make this. No, we won't. We'll make this. No, we won't. We'll make it. We promise this time. Nah, no, we won't. That's happened a lot. But anyway, we digress. What did you think of the Flash movie, without spoiling? I had a really weird experience with the Flash. I am going to go on record now as saying I am one of those people that is okay to say that it wasn't a good film. And yet, despite that, I really enjoyed myself. I think I even had a revelation in the cinema. I'm going through this period at the moment of trying to work out all the different things that make a film good, with the idea that there is no one formula. But specifically because anytime we talk, there are some films that I've hated. And you said, oh, yeah, I thought they were great. And part of me is just going, why? How could you possibly think they were good? I honestly didn't know. And now here I am on the other side of it, whereby people are telling me this is an awful film. And I'm thinking, but I really enjoy myself. So I'm going to assume I'm not an idiot and I'm not totally stupid. (laughs) Therefore, this must open my eyes to something. So I did enjoy it, weirdly, even though I'm going to be quite happy to point out some of the flaws. And I really need to know why. So you're going to help me with that. That's a tall order, but we'll see what we can do. It's like that line from The Dark Knight where Harvey Dent says, either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So you've become the villain by being the one who likes a film that other people hate. And you have to understand why. I need to know, yeah. Well, I thought the film was fine. It wasn't anywhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be. The fact that it rounded out as somewhat coherent by the end is remarkable, considering how many changes and shifts and things it's been through. And I think you can 
see those changes and shifts in the actual finished product. There's elements of it where you can see that was added when Deadpool was popular, that was added when this was popular, etc., etc. It's spanned several eras of superhero filmmaking in its production, and it's kind of a blend of them all in some ways, which we'll hopefully get to as we go. There was things about it that I really liked. There was things about it I think it did really well, and there's things about it I think it did really badly. So I'm not going to be one of those horrific, hyperbolic binaries that you see on Twitter. These, I can only assume, shells that say the best DC film since The Dark Knight. Because I was invited to a preview screening of it weeks before its release, and I was high on the adrenaline of doing that, so I'm saying nonsense like this. And equally, you've got the people on the other side that say it's the worst film ever made. So I'm never going to be in one of those camps because that's ridiculous and you can't really respect those opinions because they're not explaining their reasons for thinking either of those things. So you don't really have anything to latch onto with them. That's never going to be me. And that's why my quotes are never on posters. (laughs) Too nuanced. It does some things well and some things not. Is never going to be on a poster, is it? Maybe if they're really desperate, they would pull the... It does things well, part of it. You could be one of those people that's in the eight-point writing at the bottom of a 1,000-point title card, whereby they needed to show some form of review, but don't dare Mm. let anybody actually read it. (laughs) Yeah, I have seen some people pull some fast ones in the marketing. It's things like pulling out the word interesting, and then it's, it's not very interesting, was the actual quote or... Stuff like that. There was a famous one with that Tom Hardy film Legend where he played the two brothers and Empire gave it two stars. But what they did was they hid it between the two brothers on the poster and they <sighs> put four star reviews above and beneath it. So it looked like the other two stars were hidden behind them. Uh, there we go. Some clever photoshopping there. You're not misrepresenting, but also you've put a two-star review on your poster and hoped that people wouldn't notice. That's commitment, because you could have just left it off. Empire Magazine, big outlet. They have some pool. Mm. Anyway, it was fine. And we'll discuss the ins and outs of why I thought that as we go. So we might as well just go back in time and change something so that we can now spoil it for everybody. Sound good? Do it. Okay, let's start with characters, because we have to start somewhere. And we'll start with, as I've put on the sheet, Barry One, because we have two Barrys Barry in this film. A tale of two Barrys. But we have the older one, the experienced one, starting off with going for his breakfast and, and getting called by Alfred to go and help Batman clean up a mess that he's made. And by Batman, I mean Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne, as opposed to Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne, who's also in this film. Or, because there was another one. (laughs) Yes, but those are the two that are in prominent roles. Okay. There's a lot of footnotes that are associated with character descriptions in this film. Yeah. There's certain character descriptions. So in terms of the Barry that we see here at the start of the film, knowing him from both versions of Justice League as well, what did you think of him at the starting point? What did you think of the way that he fed into this opening action sequence? where he, as he described it, is the janitor of the Justice League. Two thoughts, I suppose. One, it was a bit weird at the start when I was thinking, where did Wonder Woman go? Because she seemed like she could have helped and didn't, just left it to Barry. So at the start of this, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, just contrivances to get the cameos in, fair enough. It's always going to be a bit that way, but slightly disappointing. And then I went into the sequence with the babies, (laughs) 
the famous falling baby sequence. Well, the revelation started for me then because I'm trying to get into this mindset whereby I don't color my viewing by wearing this single set of glasses and then I don't see anything else in the film. That's definitely where I've been in a lot of the Marvel films because I'm wanting this through line and it's not going to be there. And then, of course, I'm going to be upset if I don't get it throughout the rest of it. So I'm, I'm sitting there watching and there are these babies fall. I'm thinking, this is absolutely ridiculous. It's just the worst thing I've seen. But then that part of my brain that says, no, hang on a minute, you're trying to widen your perspective here. You've promised yourself you're going to do it. So try it. And so it did. And I thought, right, let's assume that this film is using this opening to tell me what type of film it's going to be. What does that mean? Oh, it means it's going to be a total comedic farce. It's just going to be laughs and jokes throughout and either embrace that it's going to be a comedy or, or leave. And I thought, okay, right, it's a comedy. Is this funny? And it is quite over the top and crazy. And by the time I'd done that, I was actually finding it funny. It took me a long time to get there. But when I adjusted that perspective, then I found the opening sequence actually quite amusing because I was kind of ready for that stupidity. Not stupidity, that's the wrong word. Daftness, if you will. But I do think that the only way I was able to do that was because I'm okay with Barry as he is. I'm okay with Barry being a comedy sidekick. The Flash, one of the most powerful superheroes that we know of DC, is being portrayed as a comedy sidekick, and that doesn't offend me. But I don't have a strong connection to The Flash at all. And I think it's going to be a bit the same as what I thought. If you're a fan of Adam Warlock, then I'm going to assume that you hated Guardians because of what they did to him. I could be wrong, but it, it felt like they changed him a lot. Or maybe hated that part of Guardians. It doesn't necessarily have to colour your view of the whole film as such. It could be, I like the film, but didn't like what they did with this element. Well, no, not at all, actually, because this is what I'm talking about. This whole idea of things can colour your vision. So I'm specifically referencing the idea that sometimes something can hit you so hard you can't see through it. The glasses are that color, and you actually can't see through to the rest of the film. So you're talking about something reasonable. I'm actually talking about this perspective that I know I've been in. So I can honestly believe that you could hate Guardians because you're an Adam Warlock fan and you thought it was awful. So whether that's good reviewing or not, let's just say it's human emotion. And I could see that the same would apply to this film with The Flash. That if, if you're a big fan of The Flash and you really like his emotional storyline, if you really like him as a serious character, especially because the consequences of his actions are so wide as to be multiverse, creating, nay, altering or whatever, then seeing your character, your favorite person as a comedy sidekick would be a real slap in the face. But this is a perspective I have. I, I didn't mind that because I don't have that connection. I don't have anything that's going to be brought down here. So for me, I was able to say, okay, he is a bit of a jester, as we've seen him so far. He carries on being a jester. He seemed to be a bit of a sidekick before, but now he's got his own film. How can you create a main film for a sidekick jester? Okay, you make it a total comedy. And so all of this was coming together in my head in that opening sequence. I'm thinking, all right, I'll watch a comedy. And yes, this is the right character for it. And because I've put those two things together, I think I was really on board with Barry throughout. 
And then when he gets the inevitable change of pace and comes with meeting, as you're going to call him, Barry too, that really felt like a good development of the film for me and carrying on from the rest of the films. I was right there. That was impressive and interesting to me. The comedy sidekick becomes his own comedy sidekick in a way. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really did feel like they'd thought about that point. I'm not saying they didn't have 16 other films they then tried to cram on top of it, but it really felt like somebody at that point had thought through that and thought, does this work? Does it force Barry into a new situation? Does it force him to have a challenge to overcome? Absolutely it does. And it also means that you can have the comedy and juxtapose it with some crazy stuff and some responsibility in a way that the audience is going to see a journey and they're going to see some fun. So it all made sense. Now, yeah, as I say, you're going to tell me how the film quickly derailed and turned into another film. I'm not going to challenge that. But in the opening... Yeah, fully on board. In a way, the film can be seen as being about him becoming a main character. He very clearly says to Alfred, I've accepted that I'm the janitor of the Justice League. Mm. And then he's suddenly thrust into a situation of his own making where he has to have agency and make all the choices. He can't rely on anybody else to be in charge. He's used to answering to Bruce. He's used to following orders. He's used to Alfred telling him what to do. And now he's in a scenario where he's changed the timeline and he has to fix it and he can get some help from michael keaton batman but he doesn't have the answers he weirdly has knowledge somehow Mm. that we'll end up talking about but all of the progress has to be made through decisions that barry makes so if they'd maybe done a bit more with that it could be interesting to the idea of i'm not usually in this situation we talked about it for ant-man and the wasp quantumania where Part of what they could have done with Scott was him saying, oh, usually Iron Man or someone does all this. I'm never the guy that's dealing with the big stuff. I just help. And that film didn't do that either. This film kind of does it, but also kind of doesn't. It's like you say, they try and sandwich so many other things on top of it that it doesn't ever quite get to make that point as clearly as it probably needed to. But in that opening sequence, that's where I felt like it might be going, this is Barry learning how to work on his own and be his own person and come out of the shadow of someone else and it is and it isn't because he spends so much of the film trying to find someone to fix it for him and then the fixing is very haphazard when it finally gets there so it's a bit weird but the opening sequence I really enjoyed a couple of things that it gives us one is it almost gives us that promise of the Justice League as a fully fleshed out entity that functions in this universe that's about to change completely you get Batman doing his thing, you get Wonder Woman helping out ever so slightly, and, well, that's about it, I suppose, three people. Cyborg isn't even mentioned because Ray Fisher has spoken out against the studio and we can't have that. Henry Cavill, God knows what he did, but he's not allowed. But at least Superman's acknowledged. He's off dealing with an erupting volcano or whatever it is. He's busy. That's fine. So you kind of get a shade of what we were promised almost and it's hilarious that Batman is out in broad daylight which is uncommon especially for this Batman he loses a bit of his menace when he's bathed in the light of the sun doesn't he well I suppose he actually gets to do his normal day job I suppose and this in the previous he's asked to act at the level of the alpha team who've got incredible powers and he can only do that by being in a big suit of armor and a vehicle. So finally, he must be thinking, yeah, I'm going to do my actual job here. <laughs> yeah, he's fallen into the Snyder trap of 
He's just as powerful as everyone else. The fact that he's human and has less abilities than the superpowered people doesn't really come into it. He's still in charge. He's not acknowledging any of his shortcomings as just a guy. That's a Snyder holdover thing, really. Yeah, well, when you want to go universe-spanning, then you're sort of forced into it, I suppose. It's a shame. It could have just had him as a strategist, a general in the background, but that doesn't make you a superhero, so they have to be there. That's what Alfred was doing, wasn't it? He was the one coordinating everything. Yeah. Which I think is a good place for Alfred, or at least this version of Alfred. That's one of the things I liked about it, how Alfred was in his ear telling him what was going on and doing all the the scanning and all that stuff. That was pretty cool. One of the things I would have liked to have seen from an actual Batman film. Yeah, which we'll never get. This is the last time we'll ever see Ben Affleck as Batman, probably. And it's for like five minutes in someone else's film. Yes. Bit of a shame, but never mind. There are some elements of his fear-based reputation, like the bit where he jumps inside the truck and the guy just jumps out. Not even dealing with this. Bye. (laughs) It's a nice touch. But in terms of Barry's contribution to it, again, he's doing the cleaning up. So he's trying to stop people getting electrocuted by making sure the electrical cabling is out of the water and things like that. And then the hospital collapses and they have to save all those babies. And you'd be forgiven for thinking about Days of Future Past with the Quicksilver scene where time freezes and he's manipulating things so that it plays out in a certain way. Obviously, they're going to copy that because it's super speed. It's a fun way to do it. You've set up a puzzle, effectively. He's in frozen time. He has to solve this problem by doing certain things. And... Yes, it's ridiculous that he puts a baby in a microwave. That has been much derided online, and I think rightfully so. There's some confusing choices with this speed that they've made, though. Like, they had the whole, you can't carry someone at super speed for some reason, even though he did in Justice League, both versions, actually. It's a weird choice. It's a weird obstacle to put in his way, because I don't think they really do anything with it as a limitation. So it's just kind of there. They do set it up, and it is things like that set up that I do like to see in a film unfortunately because of this seeming understanding in script writing world whereby you are not required to read any previous material even if it's for a connected universe with the same character no less which is such a shame because it means that consistency is just gone it means every film is in a different universe really in fact i would be better off watching marvel from that perspective every single film is in its own strand of the multiverse a new timeline because then this whole idea of writer continuity isn't required but at least here they do use that that's set up because he does say at some point through it you can't carry somebody you can only do this that and the other and I can't quite remember what the rules were because I've already seen the film once, but I did remember thinking back to that baby scene and thinking, oh yeah, that set up this. You know, they did put some effort in. But you can see that whoever wrote that original script was putting some effort in. And it does make me think of Multiverse again, just because of watching that poor writer be hit by three requirements consecutively to rewrite and you're thinking there's no way even the best writer is just screwed so i I like to see that because i'm sure and i'd have to see it a second time to actually put any money on it but that they do set up the rules in that scene and then use them later because somebody gets carried and they violently throw up and this that and the other so you're right it's consistent in the film it's just a strange limitation i don't know if it was meant to make it more physics-based, but he's already running at super speeds. So we've already abandoned the physics anyway. I could see it because if you don't put it in, then he can just 
do everything at super speed and take everybody he needs with him and there is no challenge. There's no way he cannot do whatever he wants. It is the Superman problem. As soon as you've got infinite physical power, there are no physical challenges. And the rescue of Supergirl would be as simple as he runs in, picks her up and goes. There's no film there, none at all, because there's none of this stuff. Because he can go through walls, he can go at super speed. There is absolutely nothing that stops him at all. So you do need this physical block in. I think it's important for the plot that if you're going to use physical barriers, then you have a reason why the physical can't be used. Now, I'm one who's more likely to say, in that case, write better plot. You shouldn't use physical barriers. And I guess I would stick to that if I was going to rate this an amazing film, but I'm I'm not going to. So I won't say that I loved it for that, but I will say I I understand why they did it because they wanted physical barriers. Yeah, it seems like the limitation was only really to set up the joke of powerless Barry 1 throwing up after inexperienced Barry 2 carries him at super speed. Well, like I say, if they didn't do it, then rescuing Supergirl is too easy. He just does it. Yeah, I guess. Well, Barry 1 didn't have his powers at the time, but still. No, but he would get Barry 2 to do it, done. Except he's an idiot, which is a limitation in itself. And there's where you put limitations on that aren't physical. So that is an avenue that you could investigate as a writer. How does him being an idiot mean that there are still barriers in place? It's possible. It's worth noting that this film is the second DC film this year where Wonder Woman shows up out of nowhere and someone becomes a blithering idiot in her presence. The other time was in Shazam! Fury of the Gods. It is, although I will say that if you take the lasso of truth out of it, which is another time they've used lasso of truth for humiliation purposes, it does kind of make sense to have the teenage boys be completely overwhelmed by one of the hottest female superheroes you're going to see. I do kind of get that, especially because they've set both of them up as purposefully geeky and therefore not necessarily socially confident. If you had a young Aquaman, it would be daft because even as a teenager, he was probably ridiculously confident, but it wasn't. It was Shazam and it was The Flash. So yeah, they've repeated it, but at least I felt they repeated it with the right characters, appropriate characters, shall I say. Well, funnily enough, the best example of the Lasso of Truth joke is with Aquaman in the Joss Whedon version of Justice League, mm. where he gives that passionate and honest speech and then they realise he's sitting on the lasso. Yeah. Whereas this, they used it as an excuse to vocalise things that people say about Batman, such as if he just spent his money on getting rid of crime and all that stuff, it would be better than him beating criminals up. All the stuff that people say. Oh yeah, they used it for a cheap gag, whereas in the other one that you spoke of, they used it for a plot point. So yes, the other one is automatically better because it's not cheap. And she says, Lasso of Truth never gets old. I would argue it will at some point, (laughs) if you weren't rebooting the whole thing and we have to deal with the beginning of all this all over again. Indeed. Someone else has to introduce the concept and make the same joke. That's what we can look forward to, I guess. That's a problem for future us to worry about at some point in the future and james gone to prevent from happening well hopefully depends what he does with wonder woman or someone else does with wonder woman i suppose mm. but we go from there to getting a bit more of what barry's story is his father's appeals coming up so he maybe has the opportunity to get his dad out of prison which makes him of course think about the past his dad has changed actors billy crudup is no longer in the role it's someone else 
So that's an availability thing, whatever. I found that quite a good setup where he's talking to his dad in prison and they're just thinking about what's going on. I think it was an organic way to bring that in because it was relevant that they would both be thinking about the night his mother died rather than he goes home every night and thinks about this. At least it was a, a very particular way to introduce that idea and then take the film forward from that point. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It was on plot. It was meaningful and, and relevant. Yeah. What did you think of the flashback where young Barry was helping his mother make dinner and his father goes out to get a can of tomatoes or tomatoes if you're in the US, I guess? And then his mother gets murdered by... We never find out who. What did you think of that as a kind of visualisation of Barry's motivation? It's quite a charming scene, actually. Believable family. You could see the connections being real. It's like a lovely household that was obviously destroyed. It worked and it was delivered with enough time, I think, to give you what you needed. Nobody just came along and said, I love you, mother, and then she dies. They actually showed you why, and they'd got a connection, and they sang together, and the family was shown to be happy. I don't think I needed more than that. I think that was enough for a flashback. So, yeah, I was on board with it. I also like how it informs Barry as an adult in the way that he approaches things. He works in the crime lab, and he wants to get cases reopened because he thinks that they weren't thorough enough, because he's had direct experience of people jumping to conclusions in order just to render a verdict. And, yeah. and close a case and move on. It's your undervalued, under-resourced public servant problem, isn't it? The idea of, we have so much work to do, we just have to get through it, and we're going to miss stuff. We've got targets, yeah. yeah. But Barry sees the people inside the case and thinks about, well, no, did we check every angle here? Have we really thought about this? Were we right, or is someone rotting in jail for reasons that they shouldn't be? And he gets there because he has directly experienced that through his dad. He knows his dad is innocent and the evidence suggests that he isn't, but have they looked at it properly? This is where we get that connection to a film that could have been as well, because they've since come out afterwards and said that, yes, it was supposed to be the reverse flash. And yes, that was going to be a plot point. (laughs) The director said that. And I can imagine that in one of the first iterations of the film where it was just the flash, they did write all that. But of course, then they came in and people changed it and other films were layered on top. I think for me, that's the first obvious point where something is used as part of a bigger piece that we didn't get to see. And that's something that's going to come back a lot throughout this film. Yeah, it's one of those things where you never find out who the killer is. And it almost feels like it's a dangling plot thread that they don't do anything with. Although I thought it was fine because it characterises Barry as being different to Bruce because... Bruce is the sort of guy that once he finds out who his parents' killer is, he's the one that's going to bring them to justice, where Barry's Mm. more interested in making sure his dad gets out of jail. He's not looking for revenge. He's not motivated in that same way. So I think it's an interesting showcase of the fact that childhood trauma doesn't make everybody progress in the same way. No, and it's good to have that recognised. So the fact that it was just some guy that killed his mum can be quite powerful. Yes, that random nature of city brutality. We are fortunate in Edinburgh where we live that we don't get this, but all you've got to do is go online to any of the social medias and not to, I don't know what to call them actually, what what do we call areas of a city in, in the UK? I'm too used to my American terms of block and districts areas yeah two areas of the city over and people do report this guy on drugs came into my kitchen yelling and i felt lucky to just get him out 
So it is a thing that exists in a city and it, it can just be that brutal. Yeah. And I guess they could have done something with it by someone asking him, didn't you ever think about trying to find the killer or something like that? And he says, well, it's not important, is it? Because it wouldn't change anything. We didn't need that for this film. I, I agree with you on that. But it's looking through that door to the film that could have been. And I believe that level of detail would have been in this other film. Whether it would have automatically been better or not, who knows. But it, it's just an interesting thing to discuss in a film that is all about multiple universes and therefore multiple possibilities. But that's all it will ever be. Yeah, and it was quite effective as well, the enhanced footage that Bruce Wayne hooked up for him. And it ended up being useless because his dad never looks up at the camera. Yeah. We put all this effort in and it's worthless. There's nothing we can do. There is actually no direct evidence that can get him off the hook here. It's quite a tragic little note to almost start on. Mm. And then we get into the old time travel of it all where he's talking to Iris. And actually, I thought the handling of Iris in this film was dreadful. She's only in two scenes, really, or three scenes. Mm. But... It was the introduction of her in the film where she's talking to Barry and she says something about, we met a few years ago, we ran into each other a few years ago and he's like, no, that wouldn't have been me. We haven't seen each other since college. And she's, of course, referring to Justice League, as in the Zack Snyder version, where he saves her life. Mm. And then when Barry dismisses it, she says, oh, no, I was just thinking about you then. And I was just thinking, what is this dialogue? This doesn't feel like a conversation that anybody would ever have. It's just so stilted and weird. And then any other conversation he has with her later at any point in the film is similar. It's like she's there to deliver the next part of the story to him almost, and it's just so badly done. That's interesting. I didn't notice that. I'm not saying you're wrong. I also just didn't notice. I read it as they were two very socially uncomfortable people trying to talk to each other. Now, I found that a bit weird given that I know the character from the TV series who was very confident, but that's my only connection to it. So I thought, okay, this is just a completely different Iris West, and she happens to have landed in journalism, but actually they are both geeky idiots who have no idea how to speak. And that's all that came across to me, because conversations between underconfident people can seem pretty weird. Although that's not consistent, because when they're chatting in his apartment, she's very much the quote-unquote normal one in the conversation where he's mm. going off on tangents and talking about changing the past and stuff, and she's unsure what to do with that. Yeah, that's fair enough. It's probably one of those things that underwent a few revisions, and it's, we've still got this actress, so we need to do something with her. Well, possibly. We still have to pay her to be in this film, so we should give her a scene or two, because there's not really any point in her being there as such. I don't think she adds anything. No, again, in, in a film that was more focused on Barry and Refleur's Flash being the enemy and it being, well, say focused to that, she would have had a bigger role. She would have been more important as somebody he could have talked his emotions to and came up with various different solutions to problems through those conversations. But no, it didn't go that way and it didn't need that in the end. Yeah. But one thing I liked about certainly that scene was the way he was thinking through his process of changing the past and convincing himself to do it. The idea of three lives ruined for a can of tomatoes. That's the most mundane, simple thing you can think of. Yeah. And it's just so ridiculous that there's one thing ruined three lives and he can fix it. And it feeds into that conversation he had with Batfleck immediately before where Bruce warned him against direct intervention. He's like, but it's not direct intervention. If no one knows I'm there, I just have to put a can of tomatoes in a trolley and then we're done. Our shopping cart, if we want to be inclusive to our American listeners. 
I like the simplicity of that. One of the things I like in time travel stories is the way that they employ the simplest thing. The smallest change can have this wide-reaching consequence. And of course, the life being ruined by the small thing isn't the change, but it's the idea of this small thing that no one thought of could be so significant is so significant. Well, that's what I think also adds to the idea that there was an original film there that was since somehow overwritten or had other films jammed into it. I think you've picked up on another thing that was quite elegant by itself. And if left to be that simple, would have been very powerful. So I'll agree. I think it was a great idea. And it by itself was not corrupted by a lack of thought on the part of the writer there. Yeah, it's sort of a film, well, it's maybe not even of two halves, it's probably more segments than that. But certainly this opening segment, if everything from the action sequence onwards, the segment that leads into him travelling through time, most of that's really good. Most of that's really good set up for something. Yeah. Although... One thing I forgot to mention is, how long did it take that guy in the deli to make that sandwich? That was a long time. He ran to Gotham and stopped people from dying in a hospital collapse. He must have been gone for seven or eight minutes. It feels strange to be the person saying this, but yeah, that was the joke. If you'd bought into the whole babies falling from the sky and then the puzzle idea of how can I line them up so they will fall in the right place, without being carried by me. If you accept one, you should be able to accept the other. Interestingly, speaking of forgetting stuff, that was the other reason why they needed to say you can't carry things. Because of that physical problem again, if he can just go and pick those babies out of the air, you lose a whole scene. So again, I could say, yeah, okay, they could have written something clever and more emotional, but they wanted physical barriers. They wanted physical problems for him. So they created it. And then with that, they put together a clever little comedy scene. Definitely a comedy, but nonetheless, comedy scene. Yeah, and of course, you had him speeding in to tidy up when the girl's coming over, and then she notices how tidy it is and everything spills out a second later. That's classic comedy sketch, isn't it? Yeah, and it keeps him as the jester. At that point, he does still have that Joker role, which is important, I think, to set him up ready to juxtapose him against Barry too. Yeah, and... Then the time travel happens. He leaves Iris and runs into the past. I both like and dislike the time bubble thing. We'll talk about how bad this film can look in places, but I just found it a little too uncanny. All the plasticky CGI representations of what you could see in the past as he was running through it. But I like the idea. Conceptually, it was a really good idea. It just looked a bit iffy. Weirdly, I don't think I actually did like the bubble idea. Well, maybe it was just, as you say, how it was presented. Because I didn't quite understand what I was looking at without having to think about it. Because I couldn't quite decide where the multiverse was and where time was. And I eventually settled on, okay, so time is radial and the multiverse is the circumference. And it potentially should have just been obvious as that. But there's a point where it looks like one of these old light shows from even, I think, back in Victorian times where you spin it. Yeah, that's what made me think of too. And the progression goes around the circumference then. But I was thinking, no, but it can't be because time is radial. The further out he goes. And I do think that clear imagery for something that is just a shape that you have to interpret is really important. So for somebody who liked it, I, I didn't like the bubble because I didn't think the imagery was easy to work out. You weren't really supposed to, I don't think. You were supposed to just... Well, just look at the point in the sphere where he looks and you'll get all the answers you need. Well, okay then, but 
it is a big image that you want me to be impressed by. So why can't I look around the whole 360 by two radians, if that's correct? Mathematicians will have to correct me. <laughs> Barry Allen's in the audience will have to correct me on that. I don't know. I don't know if it was supposed to be artistic or mathematical or what. I think part of the idea was it's supposed to illustrate that Barry has no idea what he's meddling with. The fact that he's running back in time to change things, he's doing it very clumsily. And the idea that you can see almost every second sort of smashed together in this mm. bubble, it says to me certainly that he's out of his depth here. Yeah, He thinks he knows what he's doing, but he really doesn't. We got a lot of that in the TV show. People always telling Barry, you don't know what you're doing when you travel through time, so stop doing it. Yeah. And then he would ignore that and do it. A few episodes later again, that's just the Flash TV show for you. Barry spends nine years learning nothing, effectively. Whereas this Barry, well, it doesn't matter if he learns anything because we'll never see him again. But certainly it said to me that the whole time travel setup was overwhelming and it's something that he couldn't possibly hope to understand. He's meddling with forces that he shouldn't, that kind of stuff. It does suggest that, yeah. It's an an unusual visualisation of it. It's not what I was expecting, actually. I don't know what I was expecting, but not that. Yeah, it's new, it's different. I I do think that this is a circumstance whereby you do want to see something visually different from what everybody else has done. I want to see visual consistency with the character across the films that they're in. I've had problems with things like Multiverse where they're just showing random extra things. And I know that the creators have said, oh, we need to show them using different spells than we've done before. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. You just need to use the same ones in interesting new ways. Don't be superficial about this. Whereas this is a different problem. They need to show that their Barry is different to a Barry from a totally different production house. I do believe that is thing. You need to put your own color and style on something. So I appreciate that they went for something we've, well, I've never seen before. I've not seen enough Barry Allen, so you could tell me you've seen it somewhere, but I haven't. No, I've never seen that anywhere. Usually the time travel stuff is quite simple, actually. Mm, yeah. I don't know if you remember from the TV show, but when he was running to Time Portal, you would run through and you would see images from other TV shows or whatever projected on the, the speed effect that they were using. I left the TV show behind a lot. I left the Arrowverse behind a long time ago, I'm afraid. Well, it was in the season one finale where it showed you other stuff that was going on. Yeah, I believe you, but no, no memory. Okay, fair enough. And maybe in the comics they've done something similar. I'm not quite sure. I haven't read every Flash thing, but I certainly don't remember this particular visualisation of time travel. I suppose it gives them somewhere to stand and chat about it while things are not happening elsewhere. But I wish they hadn't made it look so strange. Your plasticky Henry Cavill, for example. Yeah, so on that, because I I didn't know in the cinema what to think. Did they purposefully make it seem unreal because they wanted to show that it was other multiverses that didn't exist for us? Or did they run out of money and it was just a bit dodgy? I think it was just a bit dodgy. That particular image is just from Justice League. Hmm. It's when they're all fighting Superman after he's just been resurrected. Oh, sorry. I was thinking of the whole sphere whereby you see various images of his mother and father. Because that's the thing I remember when he first goes into the sphere and he's trying to, well, he's not trying to run back, but he's remembering his past and therefore that's where he's going to go. The images of his mother and father both look quite unreal yeah and at the time because i was trying to shift into a very positive viewing perspective i was thinking okay they've done this on purpose perhaps to show me that this is in some way unreal 
But then when I was afterwards thinking, okay, I need to be able to accept that this isn't necessarily a great film, I was also forced to consider, no, maybe that's just bad CGI. I don't know. I'm happy to believe either. The director tried to say that any of the cartoonish CGI was because when Barry's running and therefore connecting with the speed force, it distorts his view of the world in some way, which I'm okay to buy into if the rest of the film didn't look so terrible in places. Right. There's elements of visuals that wouldn't stack up there. But apparently, if you watch carefully in the baby falling scene, you can see where maybe from Barry's perspective, they look more animated, but the ones on his periphery look more real or something. I didn't look for that because I didn't know to look for it on either viewing. But apparently that was a thing. And it's something that they maybe had time to do in certain sequences, but not in others. Yeah. The director had a go at trying to explain it anyway. Well, I could believe they had an idea because these people are artists and they must have had something they were trying to do. You could argue they didn't succeed completely, but I would believe that they had something in mind that they thought would look cool. Yeah. Anyway, he runs back in time. He puts the tomatoes in the shopping cart and then he leaves. And he's trying to come through and he sees an alternate version of his life. Both his parents there celebrating his birthdays and all that. It looks great. And then he gets knocked out of the Speed Force or the Time Stream or whatever you want to call it by some random in a dark suit. At that point, did you think, oh, that's probably him from an alternate timeline? Or were you not sure what to think at that point? My first thought is, that's probably him. I I didn't think that. I have not seen the TV series, but I had sufficient number of discussions with you to know that there are several villains in the Flash TV series and therefore I assume the comics my brain was happy just to think this could be any of those villains I do know that at least one of the villains was him I did somehow see that I can't remember how but I also knew that there were various versions of Thorn is that right Thorn one of the characters there's also a couple of versions of him at least even if it's people pretending to be him and I got quite confused by all that but let's not dig that past up Despite being a time travel show, let's not worry about that. (laughs) So no, I didn't immediately connect into that because I thought there were sufficient villains that it could be somebody else. But maybe if I thought longer and harder about it, I understand why that makes immediate sense. I leapt to that conclusion immediately because I was thinking, well, this film's going to be overstuffed as it is. So I don't think they're going to give us some random speedster villain that will appear at the 11th hour to explain that they have some skin in the game. So... My only thinking is, we already know there's going to be a second version of Barry in this film that hasn't been introduced yet, so my guess at that point that the second Barry will become this villain at some point, which he kind of does, but also kind of doesn't. I was glad that I stopped watching the trailers and previews, because it means I don't suffer from knowing too much going in. I think I'm going to stick to that principle, actually, unless I'm forced, obviously, to watch one because of, for example, being on your news podcast then i'm gonna have to watch something that's fine i mean it is but otherwise i think i'm actually happier now i'm not watching these well i think they were quite aggressive in the marketing for this film they threw so much out there oh yeah well they needed to be and it failed it didn't work Mm. it still failed at the box office the way it's worked is they've lost less money than they would have lost if they had never released it so good job warner brothers well done there's a reason you're in billions of debt yeah, the whole superhero thing has become a bit crazy with the big, big is the wrong word, sorry, with the gigantic budget films. Gigantic budget films that aren't making the return that they need, so they're all failures. That is crazy. 
It would help if they were actually good as well. That might encourage people to watch them. If the biggest ones were better spread out such that you could put as much effort into the story as you did into the smaller budget ones, then yes, everything would benefit. Yeah. Anyway, what do you think of Barry showing up to a point in time where he was 18 and he got to have dinner with his parents who noticed, well, his mother noticed that, no, his dad noticed that he was old or older. Yes. His dad noticed that he wasn't 18. They keep the charming family set up until Barry 2 comes in and then obviously you get something different. But I'd say throughout, one thing I will say about Ezra Miller, no matter what else might be true of the film, they can act and provide a decent connection to his mother and father, because as far as we know, Barry uses he him pronouns. So the acting quality and the family scenes were great. That's one thing that I will say about this film, is that Ezra Miller was excellent in the performance, and it's something that I've had discussions with people about, actually, because they were criticising Ezra Miller, saying that they were terrible, and... I just can't see how you can watch this film and think it was a bad performance. And then when I dug into it more with a couple of people, they were talking about how they didn't like Barry. They found the character insufferable and annoying. And my first thought was, that is not the same thing. No, it's not. That comes back to this isn't the flash that I wanted to see. And this is what I mean earlier on when I was specifically trying to talk about the idea of seeing the film through those glasses, because I believe the people that you've just spoken about are doing that. They are looking through those glasses and can't see behind them. Yeah. And if you don't like this version of the character or these versions of the character, fine, that's completely valid. You can like or not like anything you want in that respect. But I don't think you could feasibly say that Ezra Miller delivered a bad performance in this film because they didn't. Not at all, no. They delivered exactly the joker of a Barry at the start that was forced to deal with that joker personality and have to learn responsibility because of it i think the delivery of that was perfect yeah they created two distinct yet similar characters absolutely which isn't easy to do in of itself and spent a lot of the film performing against themselves yes which again must be really difficult that must be very isolating okay you're gonna do this half of the scene no you're gonna do this half of the scene and it has to look like you're interacting with yourself. Imagine they have a stand-in doing the other half of it, and then they paint them out. Oh, they must do. But at no point did I ever notice that they were doing some digital doubling up or anything like that. To me, it felt like two people at all times. Yeah, I'd agree. Which is impressive. It's not very often that you can say that about anything. No, there's different things that actors have been used to acting against themselves quite often. Things like Orphan Black, which I've never actually seen, but the thing about that was Tatiana Maslany was frequently acting against herself. Yeah. So obviously it can be done. It's just that it's not easy. And I think Ezra Miller should be commended for that, regardless of what they've done outside of this film. I don't want to get into any of that, really. I'm just analysing what's put in front of me in that respect. And it was good. The performance, anyway. Let's talk a bit about Barry too. then. We got introduced to him in this scene as well. He's very different in a lot of ways, as in he doesn't have the baggage that Barry 1 has because he never had to lose his mother or lose his father to the prison system. He's a bit of an ass. He's a bit of an idiot. He's very highly strung. We just talked about how good Ezra Miller was. What do you think of the introduction of Barry 2? I thought Barry 2 was a great character because it does show the consequence, as you say, of the small butterfly effect, in this case the tomato can effect, without the inspiration that came from trying to problem solve 
what happened to his parents, he was able to coast through happy. And his family life was so happy that he didn't have any traumatic issues to deal with and just became this happy-go-lucky almost nothing. And it was nicely acted, as you say, but also completely believable. Because if you've got nothing to fight against, then why would you develop? If you've got no purpose from that young age, why wouldn't you become this purposeless creature who might only gain that raison d'etre when you're forced to because you become a father or you suddenly need a lot of money because you've got to pay rent and buy food and so on. But as a student, yeah, just take all the drugs you want and just happily sit there and make stupid jokes. So it was completely believable and very well delivered. Yeah, it's the version of him that didn't experience that hardship and then Barry won as this uncomfortable mirror of himself looking at him. I like when he mentions, you talk a lot and it's exhausting and I'm starting to understand what other people must feel when they're dealing with me. Which is a nice way to give you the meaning of the film in a joke because he is the jester, so you do need to see the joke. But it is that, as you say, first mirror that he sees that makes him consider that he might need to change or do something different or just reflect on the circumstance. It's a very literal take a look at yourself, isn't it? It is, yes. Consider how other people see you. Well, no, I have to because I'm the other person that's seeing you. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. Obviously, it's not exactly the same. He's not exactly the same person, but at the same time, they're similar enough. This is where I still think the person that wrote the original script can be seen because you did get jokes and you did get that reflection and therefore a journey for the character to go on at this point. I don't think the film derails yet. No. This is actually still at its strong points where it's giving you something that is both funny and a plot to be dealt with. Yeah, and it's all the life changes that he encounters as well. This version of him doesn't intern at the crime lab so we'll never get his powers it's a vastly different direction that his life takes. And I guess when Barry finds himself at the point where he's only 18 or the other him is only 18, he assumes that he is the future version of this guy. So if he doesn't make sure that his younger self gets the powers, then he'll lose them too. Well, he ends up losing them in a different way. There's no reason not to think that way. It's a threat. You are going to think about that threat. The rules of time travel, if we're going to call them that, will be established later. But the point is, you don't know that. So yes, that is a threat you have to worry about. What feeds into, he's overwhelmed, he's playing with forces he has no idea about. He doesn't know how it all works. He's just speculating. Yeah. If I don't make sure you get powers, then I won't get powers. And I need these powers because I'm otherwise stuck here. Yeah. It was a cool little conflict. And then trying to convince himself to get struck by lightning. Again, it was quite funny. I mean, he didn't explain it in the best terms, did he? So what's going to happen is you're going to get bathed in chemicals and then the lightning's going to hit you and you'll have powers after it. But this is the joke, isn't it? Because he's still a jester at this point. Yeah. He is socially awkward. He isn't somebody who can explain the situation like Batman can with a perfect strategy. And he can't put a lovely spin on it like a caring Superman or Wonder Woman would put it. He is a geeky scientist. Yep, we're going to do this. That's it. End of my speech. So, yeah. He's totally out of his depth. Yeah. I feel like that's certainly the setup that they wanted to play with. It's some version of the film, possibly the earliest version of the film. Again, yes. an arc of Barry becomes a main character. And he does this by coaching himself 
on how to become that main character. Potentially learning how to do it himself as he has to work it out. He's listening to himself. So, yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. Well, we're maybe not going to go into the Quantumania approach of we're going to give you three different films that we could have had and didn't get. But I think we're sort of uncovering what may have been the original intent here that was buried under everything else they bolted onto it. I think it's a different issue here. With Quantumania, I honestly thought I saw three different ideas being mushed together, and that was being done at the writing stage. Whereas with Flash, I felt like the writing had been completed, but then somebody else took another completed different script and jammed it in sideways. So that, if you will, confusion happened at very distinctly different points in the process. It really did feel like Quantumania had trouble at writing, whereas this had trouble with the producers. And it might be related, but yeah, it's definitely at different points. What happens to Barry 2 towards the end of the film actually sounds a bit like a metaphor of what you're talking about when he's running back and forth trying to change things so that they have a favourable outcome and he keeps getting different Kryptonian stuff stuck to him. Yeah. It's the idea of we had this thing and people kept sticking stuff to it. And now it's this amorphous mess that wasn't anything it resembled in the first place. I think that's almost an appropriate metaphor. It's an unfortunate parallel, yeah. Yeah. But I thought the performance of Barry too was great. The annoying laugh was one thing that certainly stood out to me. He had this laugh that was just piercing. Well, they had a challenge because they had to make 18-year-old Barry the most annoying. So they really had to push him to an extreme, and they did so suitably. (laughs) You were with your Barry because you didn't like other Barry. You were rolling your eyes along with him. Yeah, and it's important that he couldn't accept it either. He, even though nominated as Team Jester, he couldn't tolerate this idiocy. Yeah, which was a great dynamic. I think the film does quite a lot with that, certainly in this part of it. It's something that falls by the wayside slightly when they start getting into the whole multiverse Michael Keaton of it all. But certainly when you've got this initial dynamic setting up, it's really well done for the most part. I think it rushes through certain things. There's some logical issues that I had with it. For example, when he drags himself upstairs and he's arguing with himself and he's talking loudly and the parents don't really do anything. And then they both leave at some point and the parents are never mentioned again. It's a bit narratively clumsy. Are you potentially seeing the point where there were other scenes written that then never got used or never even shot because the other films started to collide into them? Some kind of scene where it's, well, our parents can't see you because they think I'm you and they'll wonder why your hair's regrowing, that kind of stuff. There might have been stuff in the original script about how he pretended to call one of his mates and said mate came over wearing a very large hat so nobody could see. They could have easily <laughs> put extra comic scenes into that. You get that in a lot of TV or film, though, where people are having loud conversations that people in the next room should be able to hear, but they're just deaf to it. It's as if they're in a soundproof booth the entire mm. time. You get that a lot. It was just something I was thinking about when that was all happening. Because you even get a point where I think it's his mum shouts upstairs, like, Barry, is everything okay? And they're like, yes. And then suddenly they get to go away to the crime lab and no one notices that they've left. Considering it was set up as a he's coming home for dinner away from college for a night or whatever, and then they suddenly leave to go to the crime lab and there's no middle point where the parents are in any way involved. It seems like an oversight, I think. Probably one of the many things that were just dropped because whoever was putting this all together thought it's not that important. We don't need this. Why would we have character stuff? That's not important. 
there's a long film to try and ram several films together, so <laughs> stuff like that was never going to survive it. Yeah, pretty much. So Barry too has his powers, and he has to get used to them. Now, how many superhero origin stories have we seen that involves young person or older than young person getting powers and getting used to them? What did you think of this as an example of that, these early teething issues, I guess, where the hero gets their powers and has to get used to having them and having them trigger at random intervals, all that stuff. What do you think of this as an example of one of those things that you've probably seen a million times? Well, the good thing about it was having the mentor right there. So it did make it different. Yeah, you have, well, himself there with the experience and how to use these powers in order to coach him through that. There's some examples of that we've seen in different things. I'm thinking of Daredevil, for example, where he had stick. I know he didn't like that episode, but there's no denying that he did have someone to show him the ropes early on. I think it made it new, though, because you don't think about that when you see the superior stuff. You see Spider-Man teaches himself. You see Superman gets moral instruction from a parent, but I don't remember seeing him learning how to pick stuff up and fly in that sense. And it was a full-on mentorship from somebody that had been through it exactly themselves. So it did feel different. I appreciate what you're saying. It is the same thing, but unfortunately, doesn't that describe a lot of the superhero stuff at the moment? It's the same thing we've already seen, but we've got a slight spin on it. Oh yeah, I'm not saying it's inherently good or bad, I'm just wondering how it maybe stacks up to some of those other examples. I think it's fair enough, although it does follow a lot of the similar beats, the powers triggering accidentally, stumbling into embarrassing situations, taking joy out of them. You don't see an awful lot of fear though, there's no point where he's a bit scared of what's happening to him. I guess because he's been told you're going to get these powers. The only fear you actually see is immediately before getting them where he thinks he's going to get struck by lightning. Yes which he does, kind of, and also doesn't, because Barry one stands in the way and loses his powers at the same time. Don't get struck by lightning if you're a speedster in this universe, apparently, because you not have powers. This is possibly more to the point with these things. It's harder, I think, sometimes to watch shows where the person accidentally gets their powers or is, quote, chosen. And... For all that we might, and by we I mean you, rail against Batman being seen too often, there is a joy and a satisfaction in seeing somebody have to work for it because they are not chosen. They are not special. They have to train. They have to sort themselves out morally. And you can say, oh yeah, Batman had infinite money. He could definitely do it. Well, yeah, he did. But the point is, he didn't get blasted by lightning or get changed by Earth's yellow sun. So I think there is a human story that is in a character that's had to work for it. And when somebody is chosen by the speed force, or in this case, a bolt of lightning, I think that is a little less interesting it potentially feeds into wish fulfillment because then you think oh yeah i could totally get struck by lightning not that you should wish for that but it's something that could happen to any of us i have seen the online jokes about 
Ms. Marvel getting her superpowers delivered in the mail. That's too much of an extreme, but it's trying to turn it into a joke. But the point of it is, any time where somebody doesn't have to seemingly put any effort in, then I think the story is just simply less interesting. So if you're asking me what is it about The Flash that I liked and didn't like, I liked it because the mentor was there and they made the jokes and they gave us the frustration of Barry one trying to figure out how to train the chimp that was in front of him. Whereas if it had just been, how do we give you your powers? Right, let's go off and use them. The struck by lightning was nothing. It's not interesting. And there might be more to it if there was somebody who could point out some motivation to the speed force. It chooses this person because your kind of heart, your Captain America you have no power, but you still fight against the bully. Even though there's no way you can win, you're the one who stands up for that person being pushed down. So when we see Captain America get his powers, it feels like, yeah, he earned that. And you know forever after he's going to continue to earn and deserve it. But we don't get that. They don't even label the speed force, really, because the mentor doesn't know about it. If they had another mentor coming in, a mentor to the mentor, then they they could have given it to us. But this film can't do that. It's just, yeah, there's some lightning. Oh, and by the way, the chemicals are apparently really important. Now, they probably weren't. There's no reason to think those chemicals that went into Barry 1 or 2 were actually in any way part of it. But if you just watch this film in isolation, you would believe that you had to get struck by lightning at the point where the chemicals were around you in that configuration. So again, it's just that random chance. But I think I ignored that in the film. I didn't focus at all on the pointlessness of a random stroke of lightning. I was well engaged enough in the mentorship. Yeah, well, the chemicals thing, that's the scientific method, isn't it? This is how that happened before. The best chance of it happening again is if we recreate the accident as close as possible, which makes sense. It's, I need to get the same results. I'm going to do the same stuff. And Barry, as a scientist, that makes sense for him. I don't know if you remember in the TV show where they did the point where Zoom stole Barry's powers and he wanted to get them back and they set up the same configuration of chemicals to inject into him as they were running electricity through him. I don't, but you have reminded me that they actually did do the injection in this film, so they did prove that the chemicals were important. I have to remember that. Or they're not important and they just happen to think they are. Well, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, even then, is that really proof or was that just more coincidence? And can anybody get struck by lightning? Or was there something about Barry that being struck by lightning specifically transferred this power? Because I'm pretty sure that there aren't a million speedsters out there, but actually, when it comes down to it, this film suggests that you can manufacture some alpha-level superheroes here whenever you want, which seems to cheapen it a bit. Yeah, well, they're never going to make any more of these, so they're never going to get to explore the Speed Force as a concept. Barry yeah. One does call it the Speed Force. That's the name he has given it, which is fine. You've got to call it something. And he knows he's connecting to some kind of power, I guess. He knows that his power comes from somewhere. It's not that he's just biologically fast. He emits lightning whenever he runs, and he calls it the Speed Force when he connects to it. And then in the Flash TV show... When they recreated that experiment, Barry disintegrates and then ends up in the Speed Force, which is when they establish in that show that the Speed Force is a sentient organism of some sort. Mm. So it would seem that the chemicals aren't important. There isn't enough information in this film to determine that either way. 
like I say, if they were to make two or three other films, maybe in your third film, they'd explore what makes a speedster. How do you make a speedster? Are they chosen or is it just dumb luck? I imagine that it would be through a speedster villain that isn't Barry, you would get those questions posed and answered. Because if you brought in their version of Reverse Flash, he would have to have an origin, wouldn't he? Yeah. This leads on to, and the fact that we're not going to get it means it's a bit redundant, but it does bring back my issue with the superhero side of things mentioned on a previous podcast, which is once you get a lot of them, they no longer seem super anymore. They can still be heroes. And I'm almost glad that they didn't have 20 flashes out there because then that would cheapen it slightly. We're already at the point where there's no room for human beings that aren't superpowered in stories. You could say we technically have Iris in this film, but does she really do much? She's not really central to the plot. Well, she bookends the film, doesn't she? That's all she really does. So no... You could cut Iris and lose nothing on yeah. And that does seem to remove an important element from some of these films to me, because they are then really pushing more of a action film. Not that that's wrong or bad, but if they're all becoming action films and they're all going to lose their human side, at some point, I think that feeling of, I've seen this before, will be unstoppable. I think it's a general problem in superhero storytelling when it comes to other characters that aren't the superhero. It seems like there's a lack of imagination on what to do with these other characters. So Iris in this film, they don't know what to do with her because she doesn't have powers. What does she become? Love interest, kind of. And you can look at almost any other superhero film that has human characters in it and you can see them slotting into predefined roles that aren't really that interesting. Yeah. Looking back at the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, for example, Mary Jane, what is she? She's a character's girlfriend. She's not a character. And you can extrapolate that across every film since then to some degree. Some of them do it better than others. I do think the Tom Holland Spider-Man trilogy treats the supporting cast a lot better than some of the previous stuff. Gwen Stacy in the Amazing Spider-Man films is actually a character, although she is also the love interest, but that doesn't entirely define her. No. So they were on the right track there. It just seems like nobody knows, or there is no appetite to find interesting things to do with human characters. And you see it in the TV stuff where the human character, they might not know the secret for a bit, but when they find it out and they effectively join the team. Happened with Iris in the TV show, for example. She spent most of the first season not knowing about Barry, and then she found out, and she was hanging around chatting in his ear like everybody else was after that point. Yeah. And I get it because there's only so much you can do with this girl thinks I'm a flake because I keep running away to go save people's lives or whatever. And that has to change at some point. But it's what do you do to give these characters agency outside of the fact that they are connected to the hero? And I don't think anyone has really cracked it yet. They've started to, but they end up just being supporting roles in the hero's exploits in some way once they find out. Presumably the comics has already solved this problem though. Yes and no. I mean you used to have comics that were Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen which were Jimmy Olsen focused comics and I think there were Lois Lane focused comics as well where Superman was a supporting character. He was still in them but he wasn't the focus which is a bit strange when you think about it. But no I don't think comics have necessarily solved those problems I mean some writers have and some writers haven't. Karen Page from Daredevil is a drug addict and things like that eventually and, and other things. I haven't read an awful lot of Flash to know what they do with Iris. I imagine for a lot of the run Iris is the love interest because of when the comics were written. Yeah. I don't know what she's doing now. 
And Lois Lane always, well, not always, but often transcends the superhero love interest idea just by herself because of how prominent that character is in the world, in people's minds. Well, more than that, she's got a job that gets her into the same sphere of interest as the superhero. She is someone who is going to chase criminals for her own reasonable and completely different reasons. So it's actually very easy to develop her as a character because she's got a reason to be on screen which potentially I'm MJ and I'm a waitress is just not going to get you. Oh, but I'm an aspiring actress as well. Okay. Still not going to get you on screen fighting the bad guys. Not that you can make every supporting character a journalist or a photographer or whatever other skivvy work Jimmy Olsen did, but that really helped. I wonder how many variations on the theme of that there are available. As lawyer, that would work. Yeah. What's well, the idea of giving them agency within the narrative, isn't it? And perhaps in a two-hour film, it'd be very difficult to give Iris her own plot that doesn't connect to Barry's in any way, particularly when most of this film is thrown into different continuities and things like that. So the Iris it's set up disappears for most of the film because of the structure of the film itself. And in a longer-form medium like comics, you have more time to give them those sorts of things. The same applies to TV. We always rave about Spectacular Spider-Man. Look how good a job they did with some of the supporting characters. For example, MJ, they gave her agency outside of her relationship to Peter. But obviously she was still in his orbit because the show's about him. Yes. But at the same time, they at least did something with her. But again, in a Spider-Man film, how much can you do that means that she's still in his story. I don't know the answer to that, actually. I'm not sure what you do there. No, well, they managed to bring them in the supporting characters with the same idea. How do we make sure that they are always doing the same thing that the hero is? And they made sure to show you him at school. Yeah. And so the others were at school. So I think that was doing the same thing. It's just that it wasn't his crime fighting. It was the significant part of his life, which still does define him. So, yeah, I think they made the balance. But you're right, you're not seeing that in the other mediums as easily. And in a way, we've been robbed of a film that features Barry's origin story. We're kind of getting one here, but it's an altered one. We don't see this Barry's origin story. And obviously, we're all sick of origin stories because we've seen so many of them. And it has been proven that you just don't need them. You don't need to spend an entire film explaining why this character is the hero that they are, necessarily. I often say that the least interesting story about a superhero is their origin story because you spend so much time getting them to the point where you want to see them and then the film ends. They maybe fight their villain and then the film ends. Whereas if you start somewhere after the point where they've been the hero for a while, then you get to tell different and more interesting stories. You pick them up in the middle somewhere. That was something the Batman did pretty well. He's already Batman. You can accept that he's Batman. As long as you can follow it, then fine, off you go. And the Spider-Man movies did that, the more recent ones, that is. Although they walked it back and acted like the trilogy was one long origin story, which was a late addition, I think. I don't think they always planned. Yes, the third film will essentially give him that lesson that he's supposed to have learned already because he's wearing the costume now and wants to help people. That's the lesson he's supposed to learn. So they walked it back, so they cheated a bit. But we don't need it necessarily, especially with these popular characters. Don't think we need it now because we've seen a lot of them. Yeah. And I think it's only become the less interesting story because we're so used to it and because quite a lot of them are very tropey. 
and anything where they are just chosen cannot be interesting but a good origin story i think should be just as interesting as everything else it does depend on your perspective if you want to see the action films the fighting if you want to see them at full power then you're not going to get what you want but i think i would still be interested in a good origin story i remember seeing spider-man fighting a cage match in his really awful costume and I did find that interesting, but they did actually put effort into building a story for him in that he didn't just say, hey, I've got superpowers. Do you know what I should do? Fight crime. Because in a world where there are bajillion superheroes, I admit that is just a career choice because loads of people do it. Oh, you've got superpowers. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, we've got a job for you. Right here, mate. Just join in. And again, it makes it normal. That's the bit I don't like. I think that's one of the reasons I would like a good origin story because I don't want to see someone just immediately start fighting bad guys. And when do these bad guys turn up? Quite liked it in the Batman film all of a sudden because there's so many Batman films. I'm going to have to get you to tell me which, which one the name is. At the end of the film, Commissioner Gordon turns to Batman and says, you know how you've just started using fear? The bad guys have copied you. And they think it's an awesome idea too. And he hands him, of course, the Joker card. And that evolution, everybody having a reason for doing something, I think is very attractive and very interesting. But it's not usually the way it's done. The one that gets away with it is Shazam. Because if you are a teenage boy whose heroes are the people that fight villains... Of course, that's the first thing you're going to do. That's going to be the best thing ever. And again, that really made sense. Makes that film really charming because of it. But other people just getting, right, I got blasted by lightning. Let's get on with it. Where's the nearest supervillain? That's really boring. So I get what you're saying, but I think it's partially because you might have been robbed of good stories because people just rush past it. And so if you're going to rush past it, just don't do it. It's more that I like to see the moving on beyond those early days things. And because you get so many reboots very quickly, you end up just seeing the origin over and over again. You do, yeah. Look at Spider-Man. We had three in a very short period of time. Fair enough, the third one, we didn't actually see the origin as such, but still, it was the, the third iteration. And you don't ever seem to get to that point where they're the experienced hero. And you can tell they've been doing it for a while. The MCU has with other characters, fair enough. But I'm talking more in general. The Spider-Man video game that came out on the PS4, that's eight years into his career as Spider-Man. Right. So he knows what he's doing. He knows how to be Spider-Man. And then there's different problems that crop up in his life as Peter Parker and Spider-Man that feed into his experience. Yeah. So that's the thing you can get by meeting them in the middle. And the thing is, if there's important stuff about the origin you want to put across, that's where flashbacks come in. You can make them meaningful. But this, they sort of skated over the origin very quickly. And they gave you a version of it where Barry 1 makes sure that Barry 2 gets the powers because he thinks if that doesn't happen, he'll go back to his present and not have them anymore, which is a fair motivation. Totally makes sense, actually. It really did. I understood all of that. But I still come back to he did it by blasting himself with lightning. Yeah, not very interesting. Well, they don't go into whether he was chosen by the Speed Force or whether it was an accident. Barry's assumption is that it's an accident. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time, whatever way you want to slice it. But that's what he thinks happened. So it could have been anyone. It was me, the Spider-Man thing. 
Anyone could have been bitten by that spider, but I was bitten by that spider. That's the classic, isn't it? It's one of the classics. I've accidentally got powers that someone else could have got, but now I have them and I have to do something with them. But that's what makes the Spider-Man still good because it breaks that mold. I just got bit by a spider and there's no meaning to it. Yeah. But he creates that meaning by doing things like, well, I'm just going to get money for Aunt May by cage fighting. I'm just going to do this, that, and the other. And he learns that being the hero is the right thing to do. So you get that meaning. The difficulty with just being blasted by lightning, okay, if it is random, what's the narrative going to do to give it meaning? What's the writer going to add to this to give it meaning? That's the thing that I think that a lot of these are missing. Yeah, and this film did give you some of what Barry one did initially when the whole it seems like so many people are defined by the events of Man of Steel because you see Bruce Wayne in the mix of it in Batman v Superman and it turns out Barry was there as well trying to help people he managed to help one person because he just got his powers so there's that element of I just got my powers and I wanted to help people and of course he exists in a world where Batman is a rumour maybe so he kind of knows what well, not superheroes, but vigilantes exist. Because Superman didn't exist yet, of course, so he didn't really have any barometer for heroics or anyone who identified as a superhero or was identified as a superhero. So he had a compulsion to try and help. That's true, actually. I'd missed that. I'd forgotten it. It's obviously been a long time since the film when I'm starting to forget stuff. Did it just not impress upon me that then because it wasn't on screen for very long? I just wanted to help people and it's done. I'm not sure now why that didn't have as big an effect on me as, let's say, the Spider-Man story does. Well, I guess the problem is because you haven't really got a sense of who Barry is through other films because the continuity has been changed so much in the various other appearances he's had. So when you get to this one, you have no idea what sort of a person he is, really. So you get to this point where it's, well, I had this innate desire to help people and I've got powers now and something horrible's happening in Metropolis. So I ran there to try and help. He's telling you he did that, but you have no baseline to think, oh, yeah, that's totally him. Yeah, it doesn't build on anything, nor does it build to anything, I suppose. Well, I mean, it does, because he's the one who says, no, we are helping Supergirl no matter what. So I suppose it does build somewhere, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily build on much other than, as you say, there was this one event. And you don't really get a sense that Barry too is less inclined to help people, which I suppose you can assume he is, as he doesn't have the same kind of troubled upbringing the other one has. There's a suggestion that he's a bit more selfish and carefree. He gets his powers and he's a bit of a goof about them. The Speedy Gonzalez thing, for example, and Barry's like, yeah, I did that. As well, well, it's horrible looking at myself in the mirror. Yes. Yeah, he does have a lack of responsibility in him because he didn't see trauma in his youth, does Barry too. But that's one of the good things about that character. It does make sense. You are defined by your experiences. He does sort of get dragged through the origin story process, doesn't he? Possibly unwillingly. He never embraces anything other than this is cool until it gets really put upon him in the final battle, which is something that I think the final battle does do believably. I know the final battle isn't necessarily the best final battle that's ever been seen, but I think you can see Barry too, first of all, being uncertain, then kind of start to feel his way. Then he gets mentored by Barry one and he starts to get into it. And it's almost like it grows him up because he thinks, oh, we are supposed to do something. This is real. I can see people dying and I can fight and I can do something. So I did feel that Barry 2's descent into the monster in the Speed Force was, I won't say well-earned because it was one event. How you could get that obsessed 
in one event. I don't know. So I wouldn't say it was awesome. I wouldn't say it was well done. And I won't say it was constructed because I think that level of dissent needed to be built over years of trauma and failure. But what I will say is I do think I saw a progression in Barry too, where it started to mean something to him in that moment. And he was well educated by his mentor, such that he believably went through some sort of growth in that moment. Yeah, well, up until that point, he'd been told the theory of how dangerous it is out there. And that was him recognize that and practice. I suppose the Russian, or not Russian, mercenary base thing was also an example of that, but I wonder if he just felt safe because Keaton's Batman was there and doing everything. Yeah. Although he does get shot in that moment. you think that would be more formative. Like, oh, I'm not invincible. Oh, crap. Well, you could argue that those moments come together. The reason that he is not just running away when he's facing Zod is because... Things like being shot have given him a perspective to build upon. Maybe if he hadn't have been shot, then he wouldn't have fought so hard in the final battle. He would have just run for it. So it makes you think of what we were talking earlier, that there was a film here. I think there was a film start to finish built with... A flow that did work, whether it was great or not, we'll never know. But I think there was a coherent story that was then impacted upon by other stories somehow. Because I could see the movement of Barry 2 going from a total joke to somebody who was passionate enough to fall in the speed force and going through the rescue, the battle, all of these things helped to mold him. But there's so much going on and there's interruptions and these impacts from other stories and so on. It's easy to see that the substance of that was lost from too many hits. My favourite stuff in this film was Barry interacting with his younger self. Yeah, definitely. I think that was the strongest stuff. But as you say, it gets crushed under the weight of everything else the film wants Mm -hmm. to do. Whereas it could have been a far more simple story about Barry understanding that he needs to grow and move on because this is what I could be like or used to be like. Yeah. I don't think he was ever Barry too. No. But it's more that there is nothing like showing an understanding of something through teaching it to somebody else. They say that you don't fully understand something until you can actually teach it to another person because you then know all the ins and outs of it. So if he couldn't see a way to becoming a superhero himself, then working out how to get somebody else to it would be a perfect instructional method for himself. So I I don't think it was avoiding being buried too. I think it was more of a journey of how on earth do I do this? You can't tell yourself what to do, but actually much easier to see an external perspective. He would have been mentoring himself at the same time as he was mentoring Barry too. And then he would have gotten to be the superhero Like you said at the start, he isn't a superhero and he has to learn to be. I think he would have done. I think he would have learned to have been a superhero at the end of the original film in a much more focused way. Yeah. And at the same time, he does see things of himself that he recognises in Barry too, perhaps to different concentrations. But he does remark on, I'm suddenly understanding how other people feel when they speak to me. Well, there is a bit of that, yeah. Which is obviously as a joke, but also it's the, this other me is holding up a mirror to me and I don't like it. 
I don't like seeing what I'm like through the eyes of other people. And obviously it's a bit extreme as an example, but it's one of those, yeah, dial it up and then it does become more powerful that way because you are seeing it reflected back at you, but amplified. That's an interesting, in theory, thing for Barry to learn about himself. And it's like I said earlier, there is a potential incomplete arc here about Barry becoming a main character after spending however many films being a supporting character. Yeah, I believe they could have done that. Obviously, it's one of those things that we'll never see now because it's it's not going to be able to show that growth into another area. But I completely believe that that is what the writers were originally going for when they were creating this script almost 300 years ago now. <laughs> like I keep saying, the same day that Grant Gustin's TV show premiered is the same day they announced Ezra Miller's casting. Yeah. It's insane. That was for a cameo in Batman v Superman, but still. Yes. It's a long time that we've been, well, I don't know about waiting, but a long time that this film has been in development. Far too long a time. Yeah, strange days. So we'll come back to the Barrys most likely. Let's talk about the return of Michael Keaton as Batman in this film. I want to say that everybody was excited about it, but the box office suggests that, not really. Not that many people were excited about the return of Michael Keaton's Batman. I think they misjudged the nostalgia on that one quite heavily. I can't remember if I said it earlier in this conversation or if I said it offline. Well, I definitely said it offline. You might have resonated with audiences more prominently if Christian Bale had been in the Michael Keaton position. He's at least a Batman that a lot of the audience will remember because Batman Begins was out in 2005 which is, of course, far more recent than 1989 when Michael Keaton was Batman. Yeah, just by the numbers, you're definitely going to be right. Christian Bale was asked to cameo, and he said no, apparently. Well, fair enough. <laughs> what are you going to have me do? Step out of a car at the end of the film? I'm not doing that. Yeah, exactly. I can't really blame him for that. I already did Thor. I'm not doing any more of these. Yeah, I think he might have been feeling a bit bitter after that film. <laughs> but what did you think of the return of Michael Keaton's Batman? You were probably of an age where you would be able to watch this when it came out. Yeah, I, I remember that the first time around, absolutely. It didn't really resonate with me, though. It wasn't a promise that I was like, oh, I really want to see that again. But it's difficult to judge the emotion for me there. I wasn't against it either, and I can't figure out where my emotions are on that alone because I've become so disconnected with the superhero films across the board. And when I was thinking about Flash going in, I had no expectations that I was going to enjoy it. I just wanted to know. It felt like it was something that I had to see as a film, but I wasn't expecting to really enjoy myself going in. Unlike most of the movie-going audience, it seems. I'm going to keep coming back to this box office failure thing, I think. Even that, I don't know how to judge it, because... They say, oh, this is a failure because it hasn't made its money. None of these films can make their money if you spend half a billion on them. And if we're talking about it reporting 250 and then there's hidden costs that might take it up, maybe they do cost half a billion. They can't make this money back. So I do wonder, I'd like to see ticket sales compared to other ones to see how many people went to see it or not. But either way, coming back to me, I struggle to answer your question, as I say, because I had no expectation of the film really being any good. I have no expectation that writers are interested in writing in-depth stories. I've no expectation that writers are interested in reading the scripts of the previous films and having any continuity, which is something I've said that I personally enjoy. So if I'm going in with this not quite negativity, because I wasn't saying 
this is definitely going to be bad. It was just this neutrality. But I do think even that gray neutrality as a blanket covering this film as I went in stopped me having any excitement. If I'd have been in a time period, maybe 10 years ago, when we were all like, there's another Marvel film coming out. I have to see this, you know, and you were really looking forward to it. Then maybe I would have had a different reaction. Oh yeah, I would like to see Michael Keaton again. These films are so well-written. I would like to see a well-written Michael Keaton coming back. So I'd like to leave the door open to that as a possibility. I can't prove it because unlike Barry, I can't cross dimensions in time, which is a shame because that would really help us answer this question. (laughs) But I am stuck with that because we are talking about emotional reactions. You brought up the thing that you, you often bring up about the writers of these things not reading the previous work and then following on from it. I don't think whoever wrote the Michael Keaton character in this film actually understood the Michael Keaton Batman as he was depicted in the Tim Burton movies. I think what happened was they decided to superficially adapt him with the iconography that you recognise. So the costume looks the same. The gadgets are hilariously 80s retro. The theme plays whenever he does anything. Stuff like that. The term is member berries. We're just putting this in because you remember it. We're not actually doing anything with it. I feel like Michael Keaton in this film is what people were worried that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield were going to be in No Way Home. But they were actually putting that film with purpose to them. They brought them in and they made a lot out of how different they are to this new Peter Parker. And they bounce off each other through that. They develop a dynamic between these three characters and explore that. Whereas this, he's just an action figure. He's there to play the hits. He's a pull string puppet. He says the, you want to get nuts, let's get nuts line, which some people liked, I guess, in the 89 film, but it's not exactly a definitive line as such, I don't think. I mean, it is and it isn't. I don't think it needs to be said as such. And Michael Keaton is just effortlessly charismatic, so he makes something out of the nothing that he's given, really. But even he acknowledged he was brought back to do this role, and it was effortless for him, really. There wasn't anything there. Yeah. He equated it with his Morbius cameo. <laughs> the You Want to Get Nuts line was weak, and I even felt in the moment that he didn't give it any energy. He kind of sighs before he says it as well. It does. He really does. Yeah, I thought that. And it's obvious why because when he originally says it it's built in to almost the desperation of the moment but here there is not an equivalent desperation so i have to agree with you that that particular line was very poorly written in because it had no context and it was pretty much the writer saying do you know what meme i love Let's put this meme in. And so it was delivered as a meme. And memes don't have context on purpose, so you can employ them everywhere. But it actually fails as a meme because it needs context. It needs that desperation in facing off a fight that's coming up. So that was terrible. That was actively terrible. I'm pretty sure that you're only able to enjoy that by bringing the emotion that you felt with the previous film yourself to that moment. And that is something a clever human being can do because your brain is smart, it knows how to please you, and it's great with memory in terms of emotion. Memory is not good for bringing up individual words and so on, but it's great for remembering emotion. And a human could bring that film from decades past into that moment and go, yes, I enjoyed that at the time. So 
I can see that that moment was enjoyable, but I would challenge that it's not enjoyable because it's in this film. It's enjoyable because it was something good in a previous film. It's here because you remember it. Yeah. I'm not sure that really applies to the whole thing. I will say that they didn't really give Batman anything to do in this. They didn't give Michael Keaton anything to do in it. But that's the same as Supergirl. Both of them are just, can you play the role you're needed in this film? You are a supporting cast member. Can you just do that, please? Both of them needed to be not in an asteroid impact on a different film. I think they were both part of those impacts from a different film and just crashed into it. It seems reasonable that the original writer, as I said 300 years ago, wrote a Flash film, like you've suggested. It's a Flash film. Two Flashes and one evil Flash. And then along the way, people have said, do you know what would be awesome? Do you know what would be great? Do you know what meme I love? And all these other stories impact on it. Therefore, they don't have their own story, which is a shame. So they are robbed of that. But I don't know that that means them all as bad as that line. I do think that Let's Go Nuts line is definitely the worst of the law. (laughs) If they wanted to adapt Flashpoint, they could have done it a little more directly, as in, you've seen the animated film, it's Thomas Wayne that's Batman in that continuity so they could have jeffrey dean morgan played thomas wayne in the flashback of batman v superman brought him in as the batman of that and then you've got a blank slate you don't have any baggage that people want to play with you have a character that you can create from the ground up effectively whereas here they're doing the opposite they're doing the you remember things about this guy we're just going to give you them and we're not really going to do anything with him as such there is one moment though where the character seems to be there and i don't think it's a script choice i think it's an actor choice Really? It's the bit where after they've retrieved Kara and he's taking off his bat suit and he's stitching up his wounds, there's a bit where he looks in the mirror and he gives this almost satisfied smile. And I remember thinking, there's that unhinged psychopath from yes. the Tim Burton movies. Because that's what Michael Keaton's Batman was. He was nuts. He was borderline insane. And there was a kind of glee to the way that he played that. And in that one moment, I was like, there he is. And I'm sure Michael Keaton probably brought that rather than the actual script. Probably. I've heard the first thing they do, and they say, here's a script, is get rid of the stage directions. Remove all of that. The director and the actor know best on this. So the idea that smiles at mirror was in the script is hard to believe it was in and kept. Or maybe it was just he's stitching up his wounds and then Michael Keaton does the little grin. Yeah, he just decorates it. So that was... One moment, I guess, that someone brought to it, probably Michael Keaton, that gives you a bit of character. But I've mentioned it when talking about the trailer. They have a move in this very unnatural, plasticky CGI way, which doesn't really work for that character. Because, again, part of the appeal of his fighting style was he couldn't turn his head. He had to turn his whole body. So the fights he would be in would tend to be very short because he would sort of brute force them. And then here he's zipping around and gliding about and all that stuff and... They're just adding special effects to it, which again, I think, runs away from the Michael Keaton Batman character. I don't think you see much of him in this film. Again, you get the gadget stuff, but you could do that with almost any Batman, really. I think I don't notice that stuff as much as you. I'm not denying it. I'm not even going to challenge it. I do think I just don't notice the fighting styles and the action side of it as much as you do. But it does make sense that that happened because as you say if they're just going to cgi generate it you almost create a new batman what do we want i want this swirl i want that movement so yeah very logical 
well, he effectively is a new Batman because he isn't the Tim Burton one because he belongs to this universe that Barry lives in. Oh, yeah. They make that very clear with their spaghetti argument that it is a new one. But he has all the iconography from the one you recognise and they want you to believe that it's essentially him. So they're telling you that it is him and it isn't him in different ways. Yeah, I think they're trying to say it is him, but can we just rewrite some of his story? And the physics of the universe that they give you allows you to take it further and say, ah, it's more than that. You've changed his character as well. I don't know whether I care about either of them, though, simply because they didn't necessarily dive into any of it well enough to inspire me to care. I was caring about the berries. Those are the people that I believe I enjoyed this film for. Everybody else was to support his story. So I will say that a Batman we could have got would have been a lot better. But I don't think I was watching the film for Batman. I wasn't watching the film for Supergirl. So it, it's an odd one. It stands out really strongly when you think of it in terms of, oh, they were just his sidekicks. And you're thinking, I wonder if somebody did it on purpose. I don't actually believe this, but I do wonder if somebody thought about it on purpose right. He's pretty much a sidekick in the previous films, and we want him to learn to be more than a sidekick. In this film, he's going to be the actual superhero. Let's put the other characters in then as his sidekicks. And that will show, by juxtaposition, that he is moving on because he's taken the role and everybody else has gone down a level. I'm not convinced that was actually purposely done at all, but it's something that I gave consideration to, and I do notice them that way. I wasn't too worried about not seeing the detail of the two of them because the film told me, don't look here, they're sidekicks. That's all they're ever going to be. Don't expect any more from them. Whether that's a good choice or not is a separate argument. But I do believe the film told me to do that. Don't expect anything from these people. That's not why they're here. And then if it was a more pure Flashpoint adaptation with your Thomas Wayne Batman, then it's less distracting, isn't it? Because they very clearly exist to provide the resources for Barry to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. Yeah. Whereas when it's, oh, look, it's Michael Keaton Batman and he's exactly as you remember him, kind of. It's more distracting that way because they're trying to get you to congratulate them for bringing this guy back, I guess. The Supergirl thing is a separate consideration that we'll get to. But I do question the mentality behind bringing this version of Batman in because he effectively exists to be the rich guy that gives Barry all the stuff he needs. He can take him to places, he has planes, he has resources, whatever it is that he needs done. It's almost the ability to take charge in a situation that he has to overcome by interacting with this Batman as well. His first thought is, I've broken the universe, let's go see Bruce Wayne, he'll help. He'll know what to do. Yeah, it's the second one. It's it's that he will have the ideas, he'll fix it. He's the parent figure, he's the strategist. Yeah, and then he gets there and he says, oh God, this isn't my Bruce. Uh Uh-oh. But this guy knows everything about the multiverse, so he's actually really helpful. He actually knows more than I do somehow. You can see the thought process, though, because they can't complete the original script with Batman as a strategist. And I'm referring to this as the original script. I'm not actually saying that there was an actual plan with the script and then these impacts definitely changed it. That's just how I think of it. So I'm going to refer to it as the original script just because that's how I saw it. This original script idea that Barry has to become... What does he have to become? He has to become the superhero instead of the sidekick. He has to learn to stand on his own two feet. He has to grow up and he has to take control. Now, he cannot discover a Batman that stays in control. 
because if he does, it's a block on his story. Now, if they ditch Barry too, then Batman can mentor Barry, and then you've got the classic wise old master who teaches new student great things and student becomes the master in the end but you've already decided in the original script that barry one is the mentor and it's really difficult to have a mentor of a mentor because you don't know what you're watching and you don't know who the main protagonist is so it's very confusing for the audience so they couldn't by their own original script put bruce into that role he had to be somewhat useless in the characteristic of being a strategist so i understand why he turned into the big lebowski because he needed to be out the way of that particular role. But this is where I wonder, was that in the original script or not? I could imagine that they picked a random Batman for the original script and just said, yeah, we'll just get somebody else to play it. We'll get a new Batman. It doesn't matter. We'll just get a nobody actor and we'll just have it on screen. Or it'll be Thomas Wayne, like I suggested. Or it could be Thomas Wayne, but I don't know if you'd want Thomas Wayne as this sort of big Lebowski character. You could. You've got him as more of a supplier of weaponry. But I think even the supplier of weaponry, Batman, would have to be intelligent and therefore would have to be a strategist again. And that's not a concern in the other films you've been talking about. But again, I come back to this one. The mentor role is already taken and the student role is already taken by Barry. So you, you can't quite use the Thomas Wayne as you've got it and keep this second Barry thing. So I do think they needed to create the Big Lebowski. And it makes me wonder then if somebody else came along, obviously, from the production side of things and said, oh, you've got a Batman in there. Okay, Michael Keaton, please put that in. But we've already written the Big Lebowski as Batman. Yeah, that's fine. Make it Michael Keaton. That's cool. Yeah, we're happy with that. He'll have a shave at some point and he'll be Batman again. That's all we need to do. Yeah, you'll easily fit it in. Please keep writing because I've made my mind up about your script. So you could see that evolution just happening. This unfortunate Batman-sized rock just colliding down a hill and there is no stopping it. But I don't know that's true. That's just a theory. But if you do do it that way, then you are going to struggle to see the Michael Keaton that you want to see. Because when you do do that, ideally the writers would say, okay, we need to start again and rewrite our script. And they know full well that it's already been 300 years. We really can't do that again. Yeah. I was very puzzled by giving him the lines about, here's how the multiverse works. It just seemed like a strange thing for him to know. Time isn't linear. And I know this because I was fighting crime in Gotham for 40 years. 30 years, whatever it is. This is an interesting point for me, and I'm glad this has come up, because I, I want to do my favourite thing, which is bring it back to a film that I didn't like that you did. I'm still not sure about these things. Remember, this is part of my investigation. I'm trying to figure out what the hell is going on, because I don't really get it yet. What makes a good film? What makes somebody enjoy it? We had a discussion in Guardians, and you said that I can't remember her name because I'm getting so old. Oh my God. One of the main female characters. Why can't I remember? Gamora. Gamora. There we go. Good grief. Good job you're here with all the names. So you've got Gamora. And I said, I struggled to see the Gamora that I was seeing because I couldn't match it up with the Gamora that I remember from the original Guardians film. And you said something along the lines of, oh yes, but I could see in my mind's eye the transition between the Gamora there and the Gamora I'm seeing here. It's perfectly reasonable because she's obviously spent time with the Ravagers and that has brought out that more brutal side of her character that would have needed to be there. It was a logical movement 
and a small enough step in your mind to say that one has moved on to the other. And I was thinking about that when I was thinking about Bruce, because I'm thinking, well, he's an old Batman. He's been through a lot of stuff, and comic book universes are pretty nuts. Nuts to the extent that when the humans have been looking around for a while, the reaction to seeing the sky open is not, oh my god, there's aliens! It's like, oh God, there's aliens. This is going to destroy my commute to work. And it just becomes normal. So I'm thinking, with an older Batman, isn't it a bit like Gamora that it's a reasonable stretch of the mind to think that during these many decades that he's had, he has encountered some pretty crazy villains. He's probably met Green Lantern or Martian Manhunter or whoever you like, and has learned it. And one of the things that Batman is good at is learning. He's clever. He's got a computer. He codes it all in. He builds the AI. It felt like I could believe that. It's a step, like the Gamora is a step. Yes, you have to put it together yourself off screen because the film isn't getting it to you. But is there any reason an intelligent character couldn't know that? I guess the difference between theorising and knowing, because the way that it's delivered is as if he unequivocally knows it. There is no doubt in his mind that that's how the universe works, or the multiverse works. And the film already wants me to think of 1989 Batman, Michael Keaton when he was last in the role. It already wants me to think of that. And in those two films, yes, he was encountering some pretty weird stuff, but it was also very grounded quote-unquote stuff. As in, he wasn't fighting aliens, he wasn't fighting metahumans and people with powers, really. He was fighting just crazy people. And there were some weird supernatural-ish elements to it, kind of implied, but not explicit. And he also exists in a universe of Barry's creation where aliens are just appearing for the first time. So Zod appears and everyone's like, oh God, what's going on here? This is new to us completely. So I had trouble making the connection of Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne knowing about all that and giving us the spaghetti analogy. I actually would have believed it if Barry had been the one to put it together. Why are you here? What's going on? Unless, and then he comes up with that because again, he's scientifically minded. It would have not been a stretch to think, well, he could come to that conclusion. And then everyone else has to sit around and look at him and say, what? Including... Bruce Wayne. It could be, you're out of my depth here, kid, I'm off. It could have led into him saying no initially. He refuses to help in the first place. And he just does that because he's eccentric in this film. He just walks off and says, nope, not getting involved. But it could have been, when you're talking about aliens and multiverses and all that stuff, that's way above my experience level, I'm off. That could have been at least something. But I just find it very strange that he was the one delivering exposition about the multiverse. I do feel like that could be separated into two distinct points, though. Because I won't challenge you at all on they could have used Barry better. They could have made him a scientist in a believable way on screen. They could have written a different Batman that wasn't the Big Lebowski who had different reasons for staying out of the fight. Maybe he'd lost people. It was emotional. Maybe he'd been beaten up one too many times and it was physical, his problem. That idea of there could have been a different script that used everybody better is something I believe. I'm happy with that. Let's chalk that up. We both agree on that one. But if I separate that out and say, but this is the film we did get and this is Michael Keaton's Batman on screen, I still come back to, I think it reasonable that during three to four decades 
Batman could have met somebody and was intelligent enough to understand what was going on. And the idea that this is the first aliens we've seen. It's the first aliens that New York has seen, not New York. Metropolis. Metropolis. Got my Marvel into me then. <laughs> but it's the first that the Metropolians have seen, if that's the right word. But it's not necessarily the first alien that Batman has seen. And if you throw in a bit of Green Lantern, who quite happily just knocks down on holiday and says, oh, it's nice down here. It's not too much yellow. I'm all right. Let's have a chat. It's nice and green. Or I've just brought loads of bad guys with me. And I'm going to tell you how interdimensional stuff works. In four decades, I could believe that Batman is smart enough to pick that up. So I guess I'm bringing that back to yourself. If you separate out the fact that the film could have been written better, does it not seem reasonable that in four decades he could have picked that information up? I mean, that's what the film wants you to accept. But when you're trying to tell me that this is the 1989 Michael Keaton Batman that I've seen before, Mm. also not, then it just doesn't join up. If it had been this mythical newly created Batman for this story or riff on Ben Affleck or Thomas Wayne or whoever, then you can possibly see that there's other stuff that he's perhaps encountered. Or they could have written it in that maybe once he did lead a Justice League and it didn't go well or anything like that. I'm happy to leave this behind, but I would like to just put it down here for the record in front of the listeners that I would ask you to believe that what you're feeling now is what I felt with Gamora. I didn't believe that just being around pirates would have removed her moral center. And I found it really difficult to believe that she would just say, yeah, brilliant. After being all that time with Thanos, I am so glad I'm here with pirates killing and murdering. It really felt like a jarring connection to me. So I'm happy to say to you, I believe you that it's too difficult for you to marry up those Batman together. But yeah, I'm saying I ask you to believe that this is exactly how I felt with Gamora. It's just too discontinuous. Yeah, you articulated that extensively on the other podcast that is totally released as we talk. Well, actually, I didn't know that I did at the time. I'm still struggling with this. What makes a good fit? Remember, I'm still here in this Flash podcast thinking, why did I enjoy the Flash so much? Because we've just spent a couple of good hours ripping it to pieces. So I'm still in here trying to figure these things out. And in Guardians, I just didn't sit right for me. And certainly I found our Multiverse of Madness discussion just massively frustrating. I just ended up with more questions than answered after that. So I'm still hunting. That's all I'm saying. This is a big episode of discovery for me. Let's move on to the situation that the film puts as it's effectively third act blowout sequence. It's fodder for that. Basically, it decides to be nostalgic for Man of Steel of all things, which is a choice and a strange one for a number of reasons that I'll get to. Basically, the idea is that Zod is back or here for the first time, depends who you ask, and he's doing the same thing he was doing before, trying to recreate Krypton on Earth, trying to track down the inheritor of the Codex. It's all very complicated. The thing that I've found a bit strange about bringing this in, is I think the entire plot of Man of Steel is far too complicated to sandwich into this film. I rate Man of Steel quite highly. I think it's really good. And I think it's interesting, the whole idea about Clark making the choice between his people as in Kryptonians and humans and Zod's drive to preserve his race, the way that Kryptonians are 
born, as in the Aldous Huxley, were effectively clones or at least grown from genetic material. So it's the loss of agency for Kryptonians because they are created to fulfil a certain role in society. Zod is created to be a soldier and he can't be anything else, but he's going to be the best damn soldier he can be because he can't think outside of that box. All of that is interesting, but none of it is in this film. Zod could be anybody, and that's the problem I had with it. Particularly when you have the Kara character in here, there's more ingredients here than there is time to turn into anything. That was a big problem, trying to condense the plot of Man of Steel effectively into, I don't know, half an hour. I started to have real trouble with the film after the rescue of Kara. The rescue of Kara still was within the realm of the previous film to me, in terms of could I enjoy it? Could I engage with it? Did I notice any particularly crazy or weird plotting? And the specific moment that I had trouble was when she goes off to fight Zod and then immediately comes back, having changed her mind completely. The idea that her motivations could have been so completely changed after a single conversation with the bad guy really made it weird. Well, she doesn't even speak to Zod, she just looks at him. Even less than that, then. She really just does change on a pinhead with no development to her character at all. She sees him gun down a bunch of soldiers and then she thinks, oh God, that's horrible, I'm going to help. Yeah. Now, that's what I've been referring to as these impacts. And I think that Michael Keaton coming in was an impact on a previously designed Big Lebowski. I think that Kara coming in was an impact on a Flash film that had the Flash in the future as a broken person, as the bad guy. And somebody said, can we not get either Supergirl in, or can we get Zod in, or can we get this other thing in? And they had to try and figure out a way to merge them all together. It's not the same as Ant-Man for me, which we decided was actually three films, and they didn't really build any of those three films but there were three good films there and they just seemed to bounce between them. This one, I'm pretty sure, was one film, but with lots of people just firing their ideas in. And it really felt like Zod and Kara were just an idea fired in. Do you know who we can get back? The guy who played Zod. Can you put him in somewhere? He's agreed to come back. We've paid him an infinite amount of money because we're spending too much on these films now. Okay, well, how are we going to get them in? And it becomes what it needs to be. And it's so obvious that they need to give Barry 2 an enemy that cannot be defeated. And how on earth do you give somebody with the power of the Flash an enemy that can't be defeated if you've already ruled out everything intellectual and everything emotional? You've said it has to be a physical problem. Well, then you need a Kryptonian. Or if you prefer, 50 Kryptonians. Why not have 50 if you can? So because they reduced it down to that physical, then I I see why they needed these Kryptonians to fulfill that physical barrier. And then you just start piling on. We can't have Superman, but, oh yeah, Zod's plot needs there to be this, if you say it was the Codex. Yeah. Okay, where are we going to put the Codex in then? Because we don't want Superman. Also, most of your intended audience probably haven't even seen Man of Steel. Yeah. What the hell's going on here? So they're just constantly refolding the dough back in on itself, hoping that it will perform some sort of role as bread in the future, but it doesn't really seem to. So it, the whole thing is just very weird and sharp and abrasive, but I, I do think it was a result of that logical 
I say logical flow. There was a step-by-step flow in there. We need physical problem. Where are we going to get one? We need a Kryptonian. Where are we going to get one? What comes with the Kryptonian? This storyline. Okay. And that's it. And so all the good stuff that you're talking about, plot, meaning, emotion, there's no room for it because you say they're trying to cram all this stuff in. It just couldn't work in that sense. It was a point where I'd even thought that my idea of them being sidekicks was undermined because even a sidekick deserves a story that goes from A to B to C to D, not one that jumps straight from A to F. So yeah, that really jarred with me. To be fair, they do simplify the objective quite heavily, as in, for the purposes of this film, Zod needs something that Kara has. Yeah. But that's all it is. It's been stripped of any nuance. You could have invented something completely new. You didn't need to bring Zod back for this. I'm sure it was thrilling for Michael Shannon to come back and repeat the same lines he said a decade ago or however long ago (laughs) it was since Man of Steel was released. He said in an interview, it was either just after the film came out or before the film came out. He's in the film, but it's not anything. It wasn't a challenge for him. No. There was nothing there for him to work with. So he wasn't saying, I didn't even try. It was almost the material wasn't enough for me to engage with as an actor. So he turned up and he did his job and stood in front of a green screen, I guess. I'd be surprised if he shared any screen time with anyone else. Yeah, he was a cameo. It was a long cameo, but it was a cameo because all he needed to be, as I say, was somebody of physical power enough to be challenging to a Flash. Yeah, and then the Flash... Either Flash doesn't really fight him either, because he's identified as Kara's problem. She's the one that has to fight him. One of the Barrys, or both of the Barrys, they do get involved at one point, but the whole point is it's Kara's fight. She's the one that has to take on Zod. And he does share screen time with Kara, for example, but like I say, it was probably green screened and they were never in the same room at the same time. And stripping out the substance of it is something that I noticed in various points. They redo the first contact message that Zod issues to Earth. And I don't know if you remember in Man of Steel, but it was a sequence where this distorted image came across everyone's device in every country. He kept repeating the words, you are not alone, but in every language that was observing it, because obviously the translation was happening. So the image was distorted. It looked very unsettling. The way he delivered the line was really unsettling as well. And then in this, his face is on full display and he's just saying the stuff. It's almost a microcosm of the film itself, as in we've taken everything that could have been interesting and just extracted it. It's all gone. We've just got the bare elements of things you might remember. So that was really disappointing. I feel like if you were just going to build up to some kind of third act fight, whether it be against Kryptonians or whoever else, could have been the Amazonians, remember in the Flashpoint animated thing, there was Wonder Woman and Aquaman were at war. You just need people that are sufficiently powerful enough to challenge everyone that's there. Yeah. So they would have accomplished that, I guess. But what you've done is you've essentially tried to bolt in a far more complicated story that existed to fill an entire film into about half an hour of this one. And I don't think it works because it's just, why should I care about any of this? And it also just gets dropped as well. It doesn't really get resolved. They decide, there's nothing we can do here. Let's go break another universe. It spends all this time encouraging you to invest in it and then tells you, oh, you shouldn't bother investing in it. It's over. It's a big light show that is there for the two Barrys to dance in. They get a disco, they dance. That's what it is. Yeah. And then in terms of Kara as a character, there is actually something really interesting there. And I can't credit myself with noticing this or coming up with this. It's someone else that I noticed online. But they talked about how she is a great example of the immigrant experience through a more modern lens. Maybe not modern, maybe it's a more understandable lens because Superman's an immigrant. We all know this. He is 
classically an immigrant. He's from somewhere else. He's raised in America and then therefore becomes an American as a result of that, etc. But the messaging can be a bit muddled because he's white. So he doesn't necessarily come under the same challenges that someone like Kara would, because Kara is not white. She's physically different to a lot of people that she'll encounter. It's the idea of she might be othered more easily than Clark would, because Clark blends in more easily. The idea is that she appears on our shores, she is captured, treated horribly, locked in this cell inside a mercenary's Siberian base or whatever. Did they say it was Siberia? Russia somewhere. Mm-hmm. Whatever. She's inside there. She's kept out of the sun. I guess fed enough to barely survive, etc, etc. So she comes out of that experience and she says, thanks for saving me, but I don't owe anybody anything. I'm off. So she leaves. And then, as you said, she watches Zod gun down some soldiers and then completely changes her mind. But I like the idea of her starting point being, well, these people have done nothing good for me, so I don't see why I should try and protect them. Because there's an arc for you or deciding to protect them, or deciding that she needs to be better than they were, rise above it, or show them there's nothing to be afraid of, that kind of stuff. I can't speak from a place of experience on this because I am not an immigrant and I'm not from a foreign background either, so I don't know precisely what people will have experienced. But I imagine there would have been some recognition from people thinking, I came here and I was treated like crap as well because of the fact that I don't look like everybody else around me. And then... It kind of gets abandoned because she decides to help because it's just the right thing to do or one person was nice to her. You don't really know why she changes her mind as such. Almost a more interesting reaction to her seeing Zod gun down those soldiers could have been, oh well, not my problem. But as we've said, this film wants those two characters, Batman and Supergirl, to be sidekicks and just be where they need to be. That that you've described is an opportunity for a story that could have been told, rather than something that's in the film. It is an opportunity, but that's not what was wanted. By the time you get to that point, as you say, this is Act 3. This is not the time to introduce new plot. This is the time to tidy up what you've started. So there was no way anything that interesting had time to come in even if they wanted to put it in and that's why you need a much simpler scenario to go into this battle with because there's quite a lot in here that demands attention and they don't give it any attention yeah if you're going to bring that story in as well then that needs to be in act one and two you need to rescue your supergirl a lot earlier yeah and then you almost need to have her off doing some kind of side quest where she learns not to misjudge humanity because she has one conversation with Barry too where he mentions some good things about humanity I can't remember what they are but they're kind of ridiculous because he is kind of ridiculous that's not quite enough to convince her but the idea is it's planting a seed I guess that she's going to think about Mm. so in theory she goes off and sees that humanity aren't all bad just the people she's met are pretty bad but that doesn't reflect all of them yeah in order to really use that they would probably have needed to drop Barry too and put Kara into the role of the person being mentored. And she wouldn't have needed the same mentorship on responsibility and in coming to terms with your powers because she's just super, literally, in the name. So even if you swing a bad punch, that human is going to go a couple of miles and it it will be fine. So didn't need that mentorship at all, but someone to discuss morality with, they could have had a more of a buddy set up if they didn't want to be a mentor situation. And for some reason, they have to stick together, forcing the two of them to keep talking. So I can see it. 
but that's a total film rewrite right there. Well, she doesn't even have a learning curve with her powers, even. She masters them instantly, nearly. She does, but that's why I said to humans, I think I would have expected to have seen her to be utterly destroyed by Zod, because as you say, he's a professional soldier. And he knows what he's doing. You'd expect someone like that to be able to defeat someone untrained immediately. And that's fine. That makes sense. It's showing the capability of that soldier against a human soldier. She could fall over and accidentally hit him with her knee on the way down. And that human soldier would have still gone flying half a mile because she's super. So I I actually didn't see any issue with her immediately defeating these mercenaries because there was just nothing they could do. It doesn't matter what weapons they used. She could have just walked slowly up to them and slapped them across the face and they're dead. So I don't think I saw any issue with that mastering of the ability because raw force was enough there. And then Zod defeats her. Thinking of Man of Steel again, that film does quite a lot with flashbacks to show Clark coming into his powers and different powers and how they overwhelmed him. Mm -hmm. He can't even fly at the start of Man of Steel. He learns that after he finds the Kryptonian ship. He realises he can do that at that point. He gets encouraged to test his limits. But then you have Kara. She's outside of the facility for two minutes, exposed to a bit of sunshine. She's just whizzing about like you would expect. Again, there's no time in this film to have her slowly realise what powers she has and how to use them. But at the same time, it's a bit difficult to accept that she's just amazing with them immediately. We've talked about that with different characters across different superhero things. And it's a problem they have with some female characters as they arrive fully formed, fully in control of everything, fully skilled. And that's kind of what they did here, although I think it's more of a plot necessity thing rather than a character failure thing. I mean, it is a character failure, but I don't think they purposely wanted to create her to be immediately awesome. Yeah. Just so that you wouldn't think she's weak in any way. I think it was just, well, they're surrounded by guys with guns and they'll die unless this Kryptonian saves them. I think I'd agree, actually. I think this is much more attributable to the plot force than it is to any form of social political commentary. Whether they would have joined that particular bandwagon of insisting that you don't need to write plots for women or not, they didn't even have time to jump on. So it probably never came up for that reason. Yeah, it's not that they're picking on Kara as being the weak character in the film, as in the poorly written one, because there's so many characters that you can pin that label on. If your name's not Barry, then you're not really getting much of this film. Yeah, exactly. She is as shallow as Michael Keaton's Batman is. Yeah. Slightly less shallow than Zod is, I guess. I did enjoy the raw emotion of it, though. It's something that at least makes sense. And I think one of the reasons I enjoyed that moment was the raw brutality of it, which feels like something I should explain before I give the impression to the first-time listener that I just love to see brutality. You're just a bloodthirsty psycho. Exactly. We want to avoid that. So let's go into that a bit more to see if I can regain my humanity. I'm thinking that I want to see some of these more detailed plot reasons for things happening. I want to see the purpose. I want to see something like Spider-Man going through his cage fighting time to earn money for his poor aunt. I'm really struggling with the morals of that and all of the consequences of his choices. And part of that is when you do something, there is an emotion, a consequence, and a response. We definitely didn't get any nuance in Kara's performance. 
but we definitely did get a consequence and an emotional response out of this character. I have been trapped underground by some horrible people, and I don't come out as a fully-fledged moral superhero. I come out wanting revenge, and it's not even a strategic revenge. It's an animalistic revenge. You caused me pain. Now it's my turn. And even though I'm not getting my plot, even though I'm not getting my nuance, it was just really nice to see, even if only in that raw animal form, an emotional point, an emotional consequence, a character doing what they would do in that circumstance, which as someone who spends a lot of time hunting down the plot force as my worst enemy and nightmare, I just find so refreshing to see it. I think I was just happy to see it. And you could easily argue to me, do you not think you got a bit too much out of that because it wasn't really massively earned and it's very simplistic? And I'd have to say, yeah, you're probably right. That meant more to me than it should have done. This is part of my quest for why did I enjoy this film, given everything we've said. I do honestly believe I got a real emotional reaction to just seeing her realistic human response because i don't know that in a lot of these superhero films we see a lot of realistic human responses we get some speeches we get some socio-political moralizing we get some plot force we just get things that the writers want us to see but do we often really get humans doing what humans would do. I don't know that there's a lot of that in the more recent superhero stuff. So yeah, it, it was simplistic. Yeah, it was almost a throwaway thing, but I was just totally into that film at that moment, just for that raw emotion. I think this is part of my journey that I'm learning something here about it. I could see somebody else saying, yeah, it's just a thing, it's just a fight, what are you worried about? I can imagine you got very little out of that compared to me. I do think that was quite personal, but it, it did. It did really get to me at that point. I finally felt like I was seeing like a real human on screen. No, I thought that was a great starting point. It's later that I have issues with Kara, it's her quick reversal. As you say, the visceral reaction to, I'm now free, here's all the people that did this to me, I'm going to make them suffer, because I can now, and they're going to pay. That is fine, that is, in that moment, how you could understand someone would react. Like you said, yeah, that makes sense. What doesn't make sense is her seeing Zod gun down some soldiers and then completely changing her mind. That doesn't work. The plot force needs that to happen so that she's involved in the final fight. Yeah. But like I say, you almost have to have Kara going off on a side quest and learning about the true meaning of humanity, learning that there is nuance there, learning that there are people that are worth saving, learning that there are people like her even that have arrived to foreign lands and been treated like crap. Yeah. And that could be who she stands up for. Her heroic journey is coming to understand that these are the people I'm going to fight for. These are the people I'm going to represent. These are the people I'm going to stand for. Hmm. As opposed to Superman's more broad, I stand for humanity approach. It'd be interesting if his cousin has a more tailored, more personal reason for being a hero, for being a symbol to people. Sure, yeah. You need a Supergirl film for that, which we are getting, perhaps, unless everything stops making money. Yeah, who knows? Which is a distinct possibility. But if they're going to make this Supergirl film, I want them to bring this actress back because I was very impressed with her contribution to this film, however little she got to work with. I liked that she was angry pretty much throughout, and I liked that she had a less measured response to things than Clark did. 
Because again, he's a white guy. He hasn't faced the same kind of adversity that she's going to encounter. He'll be pretty much accepted wherever he goes, whereas she won't. And that anger does come into it. And her wanting revenge against Zod for killing the baby Kal-El, because that's her cousin. And that's the last tether she had to her homeland. And Zod took that from her. Again, it makes sense that she'd want to get revenge on him for that. She didn't have much to do, but I think... It's another example of an actor elevating material. Yeah, I would watch the film you just described, definitely. I don't know if that's what we're going to get or if that's her done. I think it would be a bit of a slap in the face to this actress to just discard her now because of all the crap that she got put through in terms of this film getting commissioned, made, her role in it, her suddenly having to do most of the marketing because (laughs) Ezra Miller can't, all that stuff. So it could be another example of this was really good casting at a really awful time. I have a feeling that will happen, but who knows? Nobody knows how it's going to go. James Gunn might suddenly bring the expenditure of films back down to something reasonable, i.e. less than 100 million. Films might be profitable again. And if you bring the average film cost down to, say, 60, 80 million, you might be able to then afford to do one film in your run, every arc, say, every phase, whatever he's calling it. Is it book, chapter? I'm not sure. But every arc, you could have one film that goes over 200 million, as they report it. And if you wanted, that could be your Supergirl film. So he could recover it, but who knows? Well, the film I've described where she learns about humanity and then makes a choice as to what she's going to stand for That doesn't have to be that expensive. That's true, actually. Yeah, they could make it her alternate identity is the considerable part of the film. Yeah. Whether people would want to watch a Supergirl that doesn't have a big fight scene against a hugely powerful alien or not, I don't know. I mean, we used to put people against Lex Luthor, but I think it's a bit out of fashion these days. Well, the problem is that Marvel and so on have conditioned us to expect an action sequence every 10 minutes. Yeah. Or they've conditioned the audience to expect that, so... It could be that, oh my god, there's too much time of her walking around talking to people. That's really boring. Funnily enough, Batman v Superman got a lot of criticism for that because there's sizable chunks of that film that don't feature any superhero stuff at all. Mm. And it's good because they're actually telling a story, or trying to at least. And this film, it just feels like they're killing time between action sequences sometimes. Yeah. Well, James Gunn's got the opportunity to start again and re-educate his audience. Yeah. I think that will be really difficult for him to do because of this expectation, but there is nobody else that's got that position of possibility that he does at the moment. Yeah, it's just a shame that Kara was so underused in this film because the potential was excellent. Mm. And like I say, I liked the actress a lot. I thought she did a really good job, especially when mixed in with the others. She didn't really have a dynamic with anybody as such, but I think she blended in fairly well. It's quite funny. When she has her change of heart, she shows up to fly Barry into the sky and possibly kill him, which is kind of hilarious. By that point, the plot force is well taken over. She shows up. Nobody explains to her what they're trying to do. She just carries him into the sky and then gets struck by lightning. Also, some versions of Superman being struck by lightning allows them to transfer their powers to other people. So good job that didn't happen. (laughs) Not this version, obviously. But it does happen in other versions. Smallville augmented it slightly, as in he has to be hit me with electricity while holding kryptonite and the other person is also holding kryptonite and then the powers go back and forth. That's a bit too much like magic for me, but fair enough. I mean, Smallville, kryptonite can do anything. It's fine. There is no kryptonite in this universe actually anymore because it hasn't been made yet. Right. Because in Batman v Superman, it was a byproduct of the partial terraforming process. Oh, right. Yeah, fair play. 
so they couldn't go into the battle armed with any kryptonite. Do you know what we also didn't get from the attack from Zod in this film that is a massive tragedy? We didn't get a decent dubstep gun. No, we didn't. I like a good dubstep cannon. <laughs> it's not quite a dance number for me, but, it, you know, it's approaching it. Well, they made the whole climax there far more boring than it was in Man of Steel in general. And Man of Steel took place in the middle of Metropolis, and people have been criticising it ever since because of the massive levels of property damage that happened. I never had a problem with that because it's two godlike beings duking it out in a populated area. Of course there's going to be collateral damage. And then ever since then, there's been this aversion to putting civilians in danger while superheroes are duking it out. They always have to give you that line that says, don't worry, no one's around. Yeah. So where's your stakes then, really? In a Superman versus Zod fight, or Supergirl versus Zod fight, there are effectively two invincible people hitting each other. The stakes are that there are people that are going to get crushed by the buildings they're knocking down. Yeah, and one of the reasons I enjoyed the previous DC films was their willingness to go to a darker place. I still remember the joy I felt when they presented the difficulty that Superman would face if he tried to get involved in solving international terrorism. It wouldn't be as easy as turning up and beating everybody up. There would be political consequences that he couldn't get sold and that was just amazing to me to see that to see the reason that his power is limited is by something that isn't the physical you're going back to the idea of lex luther can actually hold superman in place not physically but by saying something and superman's just caught oh god i don't know what to do that sort of stuff is just so interesting and they went quite dark and gritty with it and whether anybody liked dark and gritty or wanted that or not fine i totally get that but you talk about the education of marvel well marvel has definitely lent into no superheroes are nice and fluffy and bunnies and wool and lambs and sheep and protecting you're not allowed to have black widow have a checkered past no no she's lovely and charming and she brings flowers wherever she goes so this idea of having something a bit darker and grittier and putting civilians in danger is something that I think we are forbidden, as you've alluded to in previous sentences just a moment ago. It is a shame. I, I do want to see some of the darker stuff. I do want to see some of the risk. And it doesn't have to be horrible to put a civilian in danger. It used to be that the big brick wall is collapsing. Superman saves them. Yay! You never really believed the civilian was going to get crushed by the falling wall. You can use it without going dark and gritty. But that middle ground seems to be yeah, forbidden by whether it's the marvelization or even the Disneyfication of everything. It does seem to be that way. One of the main criticisms of Man of Steel is that people think he wasn't doing enough to protect the people. And right. yes, I agree with that. But also, first time he's dealt with something like this, it's reasonable yeah. to assume that he's a little bit overwhelmed. He's in over his head a bit, which is why he's not stopping every five seconds to make sure everybody's okay or trying to get Zod out of the city or anything like that. It's lack of experience, possibly a lack of common sense. You can see that. If you're in film four and he's not doing that, yes. then you have a problem. But with it being the first time he's encountered something like that, I can fully believe it. There's been different responses to it in various different franchise films. Age of Ultron, for example, turns the climax of the film into, we have to save the people on this floating island. Yeah. And the entire sequence where they're all fighting the various millions of copies of Ultron is about saving the people. So what they've done is they've built something around the fact that we protect people as heroes, that's what we do. That's a good response to something like that. 
A bad response is, they're all in some magic and destructible bunker. Don't worry about it. Well, it makes them human as well. That's what I'm talking about trying to get to. The whole idea that, yes, you're watching superheroes, but what we actually want to see is a human story still. It seems to be lost sometimes in what is a superhero story? You do wonder if there are some writers and producers out there that think, ah, superheroes, it's all about the powers. No, the powers are the flavor that makes the individual superhero stories somewhat different. But they're all supposed to be telling something quite human. So the idea, yeah, that he does things wrong at the start... He's not perfected his skill set at the start. But as you say, he just doesn't have the experience and the capability. Immediately, I'm thinking that's a good plot line because, as you say, in three films' time, he'll be better. Instead of what we actually got, and oh, this really destroyed me at the time, when they're fighting Steppenwolf. Which time? It must be the climax of the film before they see Darkseid through the portal. So in the Snyder Cut. Yeah, okay, Snyder Cut. We have to be explicit because there's two different versions of this. I totally get that. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without you. So I'm glad you brought that in. (laughs) But the line I'm trying to get to is the point where they're in the middle of a fight. And they're about to give Steppenwolf a good kicking. And Superman suddenly turns and says, civilians in danger and flies in the opposite direction. That was awful. That was so awful. It was like the writers saying, we've been criticized for not having Superman save the civilians. So we're going to teach the audience a lesson. We're going to make sure they know that he's saving the civilians this time because he'll literally say it. That'll show the stupid audience. What are you doing? Why would he say that? Even if he does it, why would he say it? Oh, I drove me at the wall. That's the Joss Whedon version. In the Snyder Cut, nobody cares about civilians. Superman shows up to beat the crap at Steppenwolf and do nothing else. In that version. I'm not going to promise that either was better than the other. We've done a whole podcast on this anyway. All I'm saying is the writers attempted to solve the problem of the audience not liking Superman saving the civilians by putting in one of the clunkiest lines you've ever heard. Instead of thinking, can we write a good Superman? Can we write a human character? Can we in some way develop a story and build this character up? Is the wrong solution. Not that this is going to fix it or resolve it in your brain in any way, but remember Joss Whedon was brought in to patch up a film that was already made. So the number of changes he could make to a given part of it were fairly limited. So if he wanted to give Superman some character, it did have to be Oh, civilians are in danger. Bye. And then he leaves and then you see him hilariously carrying an entire apartment block with him after Barry saves one family in a truck or something like that. But yeah, it's not very good. But I imagine if Joss Whedon would be given full reign to create a sequence from the ground up, he would have done a better job with Superman than that because we know he's a talented writer. It's a black hole to go deeper into that film. I just wanted to refer to the simple humans being in danger part. How it turned out, why it's there, who cares? It's still bad. Yeah, it's not very good. But funnily enough, like with this film, external circumstances dictated what they could actually get away with in moments like that. I am happy for us to label all external influences of this type, which appear to be asteroid impacts on an otherwise perfectly reasonable flat planet surface, as bad. Yes. It's a great label. Bring it on. Yes. But this climax doesn't have the problem of having to save anyone, really. There's soldiers around, but I feel like that's slightly different because there could be a tacit understanding that soldiers, they know what they're 
in for, as in they signed up for this in a way, whereas the civilians didn't. They didn't sign up to fight invincible aliens or whatever, but they are there doing their job. First responders as well, as in them putting themselves in danger. I feel like a superhero wouldn't necessarily be as protective of them as they would be for the randoms that are in Starbucks or wherever that's about to collapse on their head. I think there's a difference in terms of who's around. But this is just a bland desert. There's nothing to destroy, really. It feels like there's very few stakes. I think you're right on the latter part. I personally would expect the superhero to consider the soldiers to be innocent civilians because the stakes are so much higher. But the thing that's wrong with this particular scene is more the fact that these soldiers are effectively plants in the desert. They're not really on screen. They're not really there as anything other than the laser beams to go out because laser beams have to target something because firing into the desert would just be even worse. But that, that's all they are. They're not presented as humans in this film. They're presented as something the plot force needs the lasers to go at so they have them. So I, I would expect more from my super, but this film isn't even concerned with that. It doesn't even put the soldiers in that role at all. They're objects. No, I'm not saying that the superior wouldn't care about soldiers being killed and things, but they wouldn't be as concerned with getting them out of the way in the mix of the action as they would, as I say, someone in Starbucks, because they are there because that's what they do. And again, in Man of Steel, you saw him working with the military in parts. It'd be if... Zod shot a plane out of the sky in Smallville or a helicopter or whatever it was. He'd go and rescue the pilot, stuff like that. But he wouldn't say to them, you have to get your men out of here because they're going to be useless. He would recognise that they're going to be there. So it's a complicated one, but you don't feel any personal connection to these people because they are just CGI doll to be thrown around. And you don't even get either of the Barrys say, we have to make sure the soldiers survive. We have to help them. Well, this is what I mean. They're not in it. I actually would want the Flash and Superman and Batman to think, yeah, these soldiers are nothing here in terms of the power level. They are just as vulnerable as that guy in Starbucks. Therefore, I would want to get them out. I would expect that. I see what you're saying. It's not like I think it's an invalid point. But I think if you're going to be a superhero, then I would want it. If it's a circumstance whereby the soldiers offer some value and have a capability, in the same way that Cap talks to the police officers in the Avengers... I was just about to bring that up. Then you're thinking, oh, those policemen actually have something they can do. They can pull the other civilians out. I see what you're saying, because when you're saying that to me, yeah, you work with that policeman, you work with that soldier because she can get people out, she can do something useful. In this scene, I would expect them to say, there is nothing that soldier can do. They are innocent. I would pull them out. So I agree with you, but circumstantially, there's circumstances where I totally get what you're saying. In this one, I don't think it is the circumstance for that, but it doesn't even come up because, as you say, the two barriers don't even acknowledge them. Nobody acknowledges them. They're scenery. It is a reduction of those humans to nothing. I don't think it reduces them to soldiers. Reduces the wrong word there. It doesn't elevate them to the position of soldiers with value. Therefore, the supers are saying, no, they'll be okay to a degree. The entire film just doesn't acknowledge the soldiers at all in this. Yeah, and part of the problem is you've set it against this ugly brown backdrop well, that yeah. is completely indistinct, so there is nothing there for them to do other than be killed. Whereas if it was in a city, it's make yourself useful and help the civilians or something. There's no point in you shooting the Kryptonians because your guns do literally nothing, so 
why don't you go and make sure people are out of the way? That's what happens in Avengers, where Cap shows up and says, right, I need you to set up a perimeter, do all this, this, and this, and then the yeah, police officer says, why should I listen to you? Then Cap beats up an alien, and him. the guy's like, yeah, cool, okay, I'm going to listen to this guy. It's a funny moment, but it's also a, it's a good moment. It shows that there's some thought being put into what everyone's role is in this situation. This is the thing, this is actually what I'm talking about. If you bring that in, which is a good moment, it's both funny, but it has this emotional resonance. When I watched that for the first time, I don't know that I specifically laughed. I may have done, I can't remember. What I remember is feeling the chill that you get when you see something powerful because you felt what the police officer felt. Oh, yeah. This is where it's supposed to be. And I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do my duty in the moment I can do this thing that's going to be useful. And that is what I was trying to get to with the idea of when I see even small moments play out, I want the emotion to resonate from that into something bigger. And yes, you can't have that in every moment. That's not what I'm asking. But I'm asking for that to be put throughout the film. And you have different resonances of different emotions, obviously. If every moment's aiming for that, then they'll all fail. Yeah. Because they're powerful in contrast to other things. Exactly. But you put them throughout the film, or you build up to them in each act, or however you want to structure it, that is fine. And that's why the moment where Kara is going for those soldiers did resonate with me because it was one of those moments and it did seem built up to and it did seem real and it did feel really human just as cap talking to the police officer did and when you see those now they do feel like berries that you're picking up as a starving woodsman who's just been without food for a long time. I do think I guzzled that berry when it came because it was so rare to me. But there's none of that in that final fight at all. No. In fact, there's probably none in Act 3, which is a shame because you're wanting it, you're expecting it. You're expecting the conversation between Barry and Kara to have that resonance. You're expecting when Kara changed her mind to have that resonance. You're expecting that point. When Barry realizes what's happened to other Barry, when one of them has to sacrifice himself to save the other, you're expecting to feel these, to have something built up to that. As much as I did enjoy the film, I don't think I got any of that enjoyment from Act 3. These critical moments, even at the very end, where there is actually somebody giving his life for the entirety of existence, if we come to it, because the universes were crashing into each other. Even at that point, I didn't feel that chill. I didn't feel that emotion. I didn't really get to it. And that's such a shame, actually, because the two barriers, I thought, were something I was really enjoying. I am really hit by self-sacrifice. That is one that really means a lot to me. And yet nothing from this one, I don't think. Well, there is a bit of emotion that works in Act 3, I think, anyway, that we'll get to. But in terms of okay. the sequence, the problem is the stakes just aren't there. So it's just something that's happening for a few minutes mm. that then leads into something else. And like I said earlier, it's something the film just encourages you to forget about anyway. Yeah. Because, oh, there's no way we can solve this problem. There's no way we can save the people here. So let's just abandon it. This world's doomed. Fine. I felt like that conclusion was a bit of a reach for what we knew about Barry 1 to get to. The fact that he would accept that. It feels like he wouldn't accept that as being the only conclusion. He's witnessing his other self go back in time, a few minutes at a time, trying to fix it and fail it each time. But the fact that he would go from that to 
oh yeah, there's nothing we can do, we just forget about it. It doesn't make sense, especially when they've lent so much importance to it for the last half hour or so. All right, well, that's the plot force right there. Yeah, we need one Barry to be for this and one Barry to be against it. Doesn't matter if that makes sense or not. Yeah. But the sequence itself, it actually summarises my views on the visuals of this film. As in, I think, broadly speaking, it's a very ugly-looking film. And this sequence looks terrible for the most part. The CGI is dreadful. The backdrop is really dull. And it's just visually very bland. But contained within that, you have some really creative uses of the speed of the two batteries, how they use it to combat the Kryptonians. It doesn't look very good, but it's at least creative and interesting to look at. But like I say, it's against this ugly backdrop of dull CGI that just does not look believable. I'm sure I've said before that it's bizarre that this film that costs more money than anything has ever cost before, potentially, looks worse than the TV show that has far less resources. That just shouldn't be the case. No, but as I said, the mess that was created by writing the film over and over again for 300 years was always going to leave you a bit disappointed that way. It's funny how Barry 2's problem of he can't fix the timeline is almost a metaphor for this film, isn't it? We can go over the script a million times and we'll never fix it. Yes, harsh, but yes, fair. The film is about itself, in a way, if you think of it that way. How meta. We have this mess, we'll never fix it, but here it is. I don't know if you thought anything about the visuals other than what I've said. I'll go back to what we were talking about with the sphere in the plot force. I accepted that some of those visuals might have been done on purpose for some sort of stylistic setup. And as part of my investigation into why do some people think things are good and other people think they're awful, I do honestly mean it when I say I don't notice certain things like you do. I think it'd be easy for the listener to hear that and think, oh, Aaron's just this elitist git who thinks that plot's more important than anything else and he's trying to downplay other elements of the film. And I promise you, I don't mean it that way. I honestly mean that I don't notice some points of the action or the colors or the design of things. I wonder if that's because I've encouraged myself to be interested in that story side more. Is it something that I've done in my own education of myself over a couple of decades of looking into things? Is it because I'm more interested in role-playing games than I am in other forms of narrative expression. I actually don't know. Again, this is part of this investigation. I want to see it. But when people say things like, oh yeah, the suit of the superhero was terrible. I can't remember the difference between the suits of the different Batman. It's not that I think it's valueless, but it is honestly that my brain is somehow not looking at it. It's obviously off somewhere else. So I'm not going to say you're wrong, but... Somehow I wasn't paying enough attention to be worried about it. And I'd even excused the bit in the the Speed Force with the sphere. My brain said, oh, I wonder if the director did this on purpose to give it a quirky look. Whereas if I think back on it rationally now, yeah, some of that was a bit ugly. But I, I don't know, I even doubted myself at the time as to whether it was purposeful or not. I certainly didn't have the confidence to say, yes, that was definitely rubbish. If I'd have been faced with the director and the director said, we did this on purpose because it was supposed to indicate this, it was meaningful, it was a metaphor, I probably 
probably would have backed down and said, oh, okay, I'm not sure I liked it, but okay, I believe you. Whereas somebody more confident with that would have gone, no, you ran out of time, mate. You tried to do better and you failed. And they would have more confidently said that. So I'm going to back you up by saying, I totally agree with what you're saying. It does seem to make sense. But potentially you might need somebody else on the podcast to have a proper conversation about it. I think I might just have to defer, I'm afraid, at that point. Okay. And yes, the Speed Force time bubble thing. I can accept that as a stylistic choice. Maybe I don't think it looks very good. And I sort of respected the creativity of it. I think I said that earlier. And the same with the depiction of the speed effects as well. They may not look very good in some cases, but they are creative at least. So you can believe that they're a stylistic choice. But these rubbery looking Kryptonians or whatever, I don't believe are a stylistic choice. I believe it's a, this was done at the last minute and you ran yeah. out of time to make it look any good. The gif that was doing the rounds was the two baddies and Kara entering the battle. They run up to the camera, Kara lands. And then there was another one that was doing the rounds where she lands and it's quite clearly a forceful landing. She properly impacts the ground and it doesn't crack under her feet. It's these little things that they forget to do as well yeah. that lift you out of these moments. She has no weight. Yes, I do understand that one, actually, because I do see those things. I shall always remember seeing either Buffy or the other Slayer that was really popular, whose name I can't remember. Oh, my God, my memory is bad. Faith. Faith, good grief, yeah. Why can't I not remember any names? (laughs) I always remember seeing one of them climbing a rope ladder, and the special effects team clearly had belt brace around this poor woman's middle and they pulled her up adjacent to the rope arms length away from it so she's pulling herself up the rope with her arms 90 degrees perpendicular to the rope and it looks ridiculous because she's blatantly not pulling herself up because her arms should be above her head so i'm not totally daft at these things when it's that obvious that physics is being defied i think i do notice then so i'm not that stupid but i i suppose i did miss the ground not cracking i'd have to admit to i missed that one and we actually had a batman v superman moment throughout that fight as well where michael keaton's batman fights the big kryptonian oh yeah and Obviously, Ben Affleck's Batman went into the battle with a, a kryptonite spear and gas yes. oh, yeah. and a big suit of armor. Yeah, he was totally prepared. He did the Batman thing. He prepared. He was strategic and he brought Kit. That makes sense. Yeah. Keaton's Batman knew exactly what he was going into as well, so he just didn't prepare. I'll be okay yes. in my plane. That'll be fine. Which he stupidly gets blown up because he decides, I'm going to shoot at the ship that I already know has shields. Yeah. Or should already know his shield. It's quite funny when he's fighting that big guy with nothing more than a grappling hook and a bunch of bombs. Everybody was doing what the plot force told them to at that point. And you've got to pity Batman in that case when the plot force says, charge the infinite power. Oh, yes, sir. Okay. That's just not fair, really. (laughs) Yeah, it's another situation where Batman is utterly useless. It is. And that's, I think, again, why you can say Batman is a character that we like or general people like, because when you see that Batman can play at that level by, quite frankly, cheating, then you're happy to see that his intelligence is what's bringing him up there. Aquaman and Superman can stand next to each other and punch. One of them might not come off quite as well as the other, but they're not going to die from it necessarily. Not the first punch, maybe, anyway. But you know that Batman can play on that field because he'll cheat. If we're swinging punches, 
I'm bringing kryptonite gas. So yeah, I am definitely going to cheat. But my intelligence that allows me to cheat against all of you is my superpower. That's the reason why Batman is one of my favorite characters. I know it may be overplayed, but just seeing a human being being able to play at that level, there's something just quite delicious about that. And then, as you say, really quite embarrassing when they explicitly get rid of Batman's superpower. You need to go into this fight without using your intelligence. Okay, that's a bit harsh. Not sure what I'm going to do. I'm just going to be a bit of a ninja. Will that be okay? Grappling hooks and bombs, I'll ninja it. Well, you're not getting anything else, so go for broke. That's where the populated area with civilians thing would possibly come in handy. I'm going to be out of my depth in this fight. I'll be getting people to safety. And then as he's trying to do that, Kryptonians are coming after civilians. So he has to do everything he can to stay one step ahead of them. Yeah. So he's using all the tricks he can to distract them so he can get away or he can get the people away. Sure. Why not? Absolutely. That could work. Instead, he's in the middle of a random empty desert and can't do anything. He can shoot missiles, the Kryptonians that don't do anything. Mm. He can pin bombs to them that don't do anything. Yeah. Well, he does destroy two of the Kryptonian ships with grappling hooks in his plane, so that's something he does, I guess. So he does something. He achieves something. Well, he keeps everybody busy. That's what he does. But ultimately, he achieves nothing because he gets killed at least twice. Yeah. And then his universe gets blown up anyway, so it doesn't matter. The crashing of the universes then, we got some cameos from previous DC properties, some of which never actually existed as well. Mm-hmm. What did you think of this as a cameo fest? I had some issues with some of it. The one that people are talking a lot about is the George Reeves cameo because of how poor taste it is. George Reeves had his acting career significantly impacted by the fact that he played Superman. He couldn't get a job after it. And he committed suicide as a result. Oh, right. And here they are dredging him up as some kind of CGI cameo in this film. I think that's pretty insensitive because there's no one alive that can say no either. Right. Connected to him. So they just did it, and apparently the film released on the anniversary of his death as well. Oh my god. Wow, poor taste everywhere. I mean, I had no idea when I'm watching that, that history doesn't come up as a side panel on my AI glasses. So yeah, I had totally no idea about that. Check out the film Hollywood Land, starring Ben Affleck, funnily enough. He plays George Reeves. Oh, okay. He's possibly the only actor to have ever worn a Superman costume and a Batman costume. <laughs> Fair enough. Although he wasn't playing Superman. He was playing the guy playing Superman. Yeah, it counts. Yeah, why not? Give it to him. That sounds pretty harsh in that case. If specifically you are the reason some guy committed suicide, then a bit of sensitivity would seem the least you could do. Pick something else, Yeah, at the very least. And the Christopher Reeve one is probably not as controversial, but it's a little bit grisly as well. Especially since they're implying that all these universes are being destroyed. It isn't actually clear if they survive it or not. It seems like they're wiping out all this old stuff. Honestly... Seeing the faces of the people by itself didn't offend me, although we'll have to take George Reeves out of it, because looking back on it, that has extra meaning. Shouldn't have done that, yeah. But seeing some of the other people who are just being shown as a cameo, I can't even list them all now, but if some of them that were more innocent than that, just seeing them, I am happy with them being an expression of the multiverse. It's the same as Flashpoint on TV bringing everybody together. I know it's not the same character being shown many times, but it's the same sort of idea. You didn't realize these things were actually all together, but they were just through a portal 
to another universe. So that concept by itself, taking the people out of it, doesn't offend me. The idea that I don't know whether you're just exhibiting a multiverse or whether you are intentionally destroying them because you're saying mine is good and everybody else's was bad so i'm deleting them is problematic i like to think that it was the former of the two options they were just saying everything is canon because multiverse which is nice because it honors those things. You're saying, no, I, I'm not just the person who is best and I'm the one who's going to be remembered because I'm the latest. You're saying, I'm just one creator in a whole multiverse of creators and everything is as equally valuable to the viewer. That's positive. I want it to be that. If it is the latter, where you're trying to erase the past, that's horrible. I hate the idea of erasing the past. I will agree with anybody that says we should learn from the past and make sure we don't repeat some of the mistakes that's been going on in society. Cool. Yeah, brilliant. Hopefully the human race is going in that direction towards bettering itself. But nonetheless, I never want to see the past cancelled, erased or destroyed. So I'm, I'm actually more concerned now you've expressed to me the possibility that that's what they were trying to do. And I think I'd have to watch the film again to see if I could determine which is being implied. One of the baddies definitely says something about these worlds are getting torn apart, these worlds are destroyed, and you see the orbs crashing into each other as well. But isn't that because of what they were doing? Didn't they undo it somehow by running the other way? I can't remember who did what now. I'm not sure, because the universe that Barry ends up going back to isn't the same one he started in either. Which at least implies that there are other universes still, because he went to a different one. So maybe we can take that as hope that they are left other ones alive. Or altered his one in such a way. Again, it's not clear. It doesn't really explain these things to you. No. But when it comes to these appearances, I'm at the stage where I want them to be meaningful. I don't feel like just seeing them is a good thing in itself. So you've shown me the Christopher Reeve Superman standing next to Helen Slater's Supergirl for the first time ever. Well, okay, but what have you done with it? You've just shown me it. You haven't done anything with it. And you get a quick look at Adam West's Batman standing there. Again, meaningless. Doesn't do anything with it. You get to see Nicolas Cage as Superman finally fighting that giant spider because Kevin Smith's been telling that story for decades and it's great to now finally see that. And apparently Nicolas Cage actually did some filming for it. I thought the sequence looked dreadful, so I actually thought they just created a CGI Nicolas Cage face with his permission, perhaps, and created that sequence. But again, meaningless, because none of these other versions of the characters interact with the film that we're in in any way. They're just kind of there as a visual. I understand what you're saying. I do get it. It would have more meaning if they went full Spider-Man and brought the three Spider-Men together. Or even just Crisis on Infinite Earths, the TV miniseries that they did, mm. where we're not just going to show you Brandon Routh's Superman, he's going to be part of the plot. Yeah. And we're just going to tell you that he's the future version of this Christopher Reeve Superman. They're the same character now. Fine. Why not, instead of digging up Christopher Reeve with a CGI facelift, why not use Brandon Routh? Because people will be just as nostalgic for that, perhaps. Maybe not, but it would have given you an actor to do something with. I do get it. I still think that what I've proposed does have meaning. This idea of showing a respect for the other 
properties by giving them an appearance in a multiverse. If you show that a multiverse exists, then you're showing that these other things do exist. They are not to be forgotten. They're not to just be pushed away as a previous iteration that no longer means anything. Now, does this film actively show me that no, potentially it doesn't. The thing I'm after is something I'm proposing. And on reflection, I could say, yes, I think they could have done something more to solidify that purpose, that meaning. It's a salute. I don't need to see them interact with Barry to get that metaphorical salute. We honor your existence, you men and women of a different universe. But... You do need, perhaps, to clarify the salute. You need Barry to take an action that is that metaphorical salute. So maybe if the camera had lingered on him a bit more, such that you knew he was watching these other universes, and that this was the moment where he realized that his actions have wide-ranging consequences. So maybe if that had brought it earlier into the plot and he was swithering backwards and forwards as to what he should do, and he just sees this sea of other faces and he thinks, oh, if I carry on down this path, it's my action that's going to destroy this legacy. And I say legacy because, of course, it's metaphorical. So he's thinking something else, but we're thinking legacy. It's my action that's going to destroy this legacy. This is something that convinces me I need to turn around and run in the other direction. Then the salute would have been obvious. So I think I'll say I did bring that with me, that interpretation. And yes, I could see it being clearer and powerful if they had brought in that metaphorical salute. And I'll acknowledge that no, maybe they didn't do that well enough. I'm just thinking I would have loved to see a version of this film that had Nicolas Cage's Superman playing an actual prominent role in it. Because there's no reason that you couldn't have. In a comedy film, you could. I'm not sure it would have been the film I wanted to see. Well, Nicolas Cage can also play serious. I imagine his Superman would have been quite serious. Can he? Oh, yeah. He's not always a maniac in his films. He, okay. The boy has range. He got an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas, for example. Yeah, the capability is there. Fair enough. I can honestly say that I have not watched enough Nicolas Cage films, and therefore <laughs> I must again defer to your superior knowledge. More homework for you, then. Watch more Nicolas Cage films. I shall have a Nicolas Cage season. Yeah. Pick them at random. Okay. Let's see what the range of stuff you get. It's unfortunate in a way that this film comes out two weeks after Spider-Verse as well. Because what they're doing is they're delivering a complex and meaningful multiverse story, and this just isn't. And there was probably tweaks that went in after whoever it was that was responsible for putting this all together saw the first Spider-Verse film and thought, oh no, what are we going to do after this? Which is maybe why it became a multiverse story in the first place, we just don't know. Because that's popular and it can be done well, so maybe we'll do it well. Newsflash, you won't. But yeah, I didn't really get anything out of that multiverse window scene because like i say there's no meaningful interaction it's funny the view of jay garrick that you get they didn't actually use an actor for it i think they just use a stunt guy and it's just some guy that looks vaguely like the drawing of jay garrick that'll do so that's a meaningless reference that's a shame but yeah fair enough don't know if you remember the guy that played well who you thought was jay garrick in the flash tv show who ended up being zoom he was asked if he was in the film as the jay garrick cameo and he was like no i have a new kid and i'm dealing with that i wasn't in this that's kind of weird because I guess people looked at it and thought, is that Teddy Sears? I don't know. 
And then someone asked him and he's like, nope, not me. I was never asked. Also, no acknowledgement of the TV show that ran for nearly a decade. It's a bit of a misstep, isn't it? They've always had that trouble of not crossing film and TV easily. Well, this Barry showed up in the TV show. Oh, I think I saw that on YouTube, actually. I didn't see it for real. How strange, yeah, not to just return the favour. Yeah, it wouldn't have had to be much. Or maybe it could have been more than a little something. I don't know. But it's unclear anyway. It's unclear whether they're all wiped out or they fix it. It's a strange sequence. Just this hall of cameos, which again, Spider-Verse does it way better two weeks earlier, where they have so many different spider people from across the comics and cartoons and everything. And they managed to make all of their appearances maybe not worthwhile, but some of them are so fleeting that it doesn't matter and some of them are more substantial than others. What they do is they just deliver a flavour of the scale of this whole thing. Whereas I think this film was trying to do that, but didn't quite manage it. Multiverses are hard. I'm not even going to need my own review of Multiverse of Madness for this one. Even Chris said he would have liked to have seen more multiverse. It's obviously something that people struggle to get into plots until, as you say, Spider-Verse did it. Yeah, and Spider-Man did it as well. That's true, yeah. That's obviously something you can only do with the whole spider connection. Or the TV shows, they did it pretty well. I mean, I did see a little crossover and I didn't enjoy any of that at all, but we'll just let that be my problem. In the season two of The Flash, when they introduced Earth 2, it was a fully fleshed out location in of itself, with variations of the characters that you know. Uh, right, sorry. The worlds rather than the actual crossovers of the TV series. Okay, fair enough. They had Supergirl in a different universe for a while in the TV shows. It didn't really mean anything because the individual TV shows were effectively treating themselves as if they existed in different universes anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. As in Barry could defeat this Arrow villain in two seconds, but we're not going to ask him because apparently he doesn't have two seconds. But that's a systemic issue with that show anyway. Barry can't defeat his own villains in two seconds when he should. If there was ever a poor boy who was... Suffering the most from the plot force, it was definitely our Barry. TV Barry. TV Barry, yeah, definitely. He always talked about the speed force, but he, he was talking about the wrong force. They always looked in the wrong direction, that's why. It never <laughs> solved any problems. This Barry doesn't really encounter any villains that you could take out in two seconds because they just haven't done that with him yet, and never will. Because every time he goes near a villain, his power level just drops. He's got this strange Schrodinger's cat-style power that is both super powerful and rubbish at the same time and it changes when he's being observed (laughs) such that when he is being observed he can't do anything by himself or he's the fastest man alive but not when someone's looking at him one thing i did like that was consistent with the previous appearances is his lightning's still blue except when he's wearing his costume which suggests that the costume is what turns it yellow somehow but that made it easier to differentiate them in the final fight as well you knew which Barry was which because of the colour of their lightning. Oh, that's good design. Make sure the audience can see what's happening, yeah. Yeah, but it's something that someone clearly thought about because whenever Barry 1 isn't wearing the suit, he has blue lightning. Whenever he is wearing the suit, he has yellow lightning. So someone at least thought about that. You weren't sitting there at the end of the film thinking, but he has yellow lightning. It made it, well, visually clear anyway that the suit was doing it somehow. Don't know how it was doing it, but it was. But this is what I've been saying throughout. If you look at what I'm referring to as the original script. You do honestly believe that somebody went through and thought about various different things and what they meant and what they could do. 
it really does feel like it was this, as I say, impact of other things that threw it off balance rather than it was always rubbish. I don't believe it was always rubbish at all because these little glimmers of hope that you're now describing one of do shine through. It's kind of a hot mess, isn't it? It's a shame that it's been meddled with so many times because there was something in there yeah. that's just been beaten out in different ways. Yeah, I believe that. And then other things like the way Barry would explain the powers. You're going to have to take breaks because you don't have my super cool suit that negates friction completely. Mm. You're going to build up a charge, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So what did you think of the appearance of the third Barry, who is actually Barry 2, but in the future, where he's been driven completely mad by continually trying to beat this boss in a video game effectively? Because that's what it comes across as. This time I'll do it. This time. Where you just keep losing. You can't complete a level. So you keep resetting, you keep at it, you keep at it, you keep trying to fix it, you just can't win. Do you know, it's interesting actually, because your metaphor to me does describe perfectly the frustration that we're being asked to accept is building up. But I've already said previously in this discussion that if I were to find that completely believable, then I would need to see it build more. I would need to see him exhibiting a frustration with other things in life such that I could see someone tipping over into obsession through that awful final event. But we're being asked to believe that he goes straight from enthusiasm into obsession. Now you can add in if you want, oh, that's what the speed force does to him. But if you're going to do that, ideally you need to layer that throughout the film. You need to build it up such that everybody is always talking at some point about, Barry, you know, if you do this, you're going to get addicted. It's like a drug. Or if you do this, it's going to tone in on parts of your personality. And you want Bruce saying that or somebody else saying that such that it becomes a theme throughout the film. And then you get your payoff at the end. So it's something that I think fits everything else we've discussed. It's a good idea. I can see somebody tipping from frustration to obsession in a final event that is as emotionally charged as watching your friends die. And knowing that you have the power to save them, if you can just make the right chess move, all the pieces are there. You just got to make the right move. And there are that many that you just have to keep trying them. And you've got the speed and the power that you can try them all. Now, on paper, that makes so much sense. But this is why I say it needs to be built up throughout the film, either with his already obsessive, frustrated personality or with the speed force being a slippery slope that pulls you down like a drug that you think you can handle by, I'll just have one cigarette, it will be fine. And then you realize you're smoking 40 a day because it was the drug that did it. I don't mind which one or a third of your choosing. I need it to have that build up and it didn't. We are expected to go straight from enthusiasm to obsession. So great idea, unfortunately didn't have anywhere enough screen time to make it humanly believable, which is a shame. And the video gaminess of it was quite well done as well because the first iteration of the fight against Zod seems to go pretty well. Kara wins, and then Zod just blindsides her, and then she loses after that. So they could have built in a, oh, we almost got it right the first time, we'll definitely get it right the next time, which is kind of what they're getting at when they run back in time the first time, and then they just keep losing. I've experienced that in video games where I do pretty well the first time I try something, and then the second time I do really badly. 
yeah. way worse. And then I just keep trying and I get more frustrated as I'm continuing on with it. And I get worse. I keep getting worse at this thing that I almost did the first time. And like I said, that's what they're almost doing with Barry there. But it just accelerates right from, I'm going to give this a go. Nope. Try again, try again. And then suddenly he's just completely obsessed with it. And then to punctuate that point, you need to have fully corrupted Barry from some time in the future, having done it a billion times, to show up and say, look how corrupted I am by this. I've almost got it. It's to tell them, you're never going to get this. And then Barry too realises the error of his ways before he's made the error and dies, therefore getting rid of the problem completely. This is what I mean by I wasn't emotionally moved by that scene. And I wanted to be because self-sacrifice is one of the most powerful things a human can do, I've always thought. So I think, oh, this is built for me. This is what I want to see. But because it's just written on paper and, and not built up and then given a decent payoff, I didn't get into it emotionally at all. It was just an intellectual exercise potentially at that point. I even liked the build-up of the obsession matching the corruption of the suit as well. Like when he gets the Kryptonian blade stuck in his arm and it's, oh, suddenly I can hurt them now. Cool. And then you see him adding more stuff to the suit as he goes on. Mm. And then eventually he's the Barry that shows up at the end and is the final version of that corruption. It's weird as well because the corrupted Barry shows up earlier in the film to knock Barry one out of the speed force. He does, yeah. To start this stuff. And then he he's forgotten about practically until the end. I think Barry one has a vision of him when he's struck by lightning. But that's it. And then it almost seems like he has to be a fixture of the film, almost haunting them in some way or pushing them towards this event to create himself. Well, it's so technically accurate. It's so intellectual when you get the reveal. I realised whilst I was completely obsessed that I needed to take a quick coffee break and go back in time and make sure I was created. Right, so what you're saying is, you're not completely obsessed then. This can be on my bloody gravestone, but it's the plot force, again, saying, ah, we need him to do this or it doesn't make sense. Forgetting that it still doesn't make sense if you do do it, but yeah, that doesn't matter apparently. So yeah, it officially does not make sense, but they wrote what they had to write. So either he recognises the need to create himself or doesn't. Yes, exactly. But you need to do something either way. It could have just been it was an accident, as in Barry One is running towards the present day and he gets knocked out of the speed force by accident. That would have made a lot more sense. Weirdly, the accident would have had a lot more purpose. Yeah. <laughs> he's just running and then whack, he's knocked out. And then when they confront him at the end, it's, oh yeah, I did bump into something about a million years ago. Or something like, you were the reason attempt number 934 failed. I hate you, I'm coming at you. That one would have totally worked, but for you even that would have been more purpose yeah crazy but of course it's meant to shore up the theme of not all problems have a solution the advice his mother gives him when he's a kid and i'm sure that that goes down as foreshadowing and layering and complexity but unfortunately it's one of those ones where it's intellectually adding up by connecting dots but the drawing that is made by connecting those particular dots is still, as you've described it, a hot mess, not a lovely picture. Yeah, so it is a theme, but not really. It's a theme, but it is not a developed theme. It's not an interesting theme. It's not an emotional theme. It's more like a colour scheme that is nice, potentially, but yeah, it doesn't have any great emotional value. That would bring us naturally onto themes then. There are a few that it drives at. The Not All Problems Have a Solution one is probably the main one. It's the lesson that Barry needs to learn. In order to move on, he has to learn that he cannot solve his mother's death. It's something that 
quote-unquote, has to happen. However, he can solve his dad being in jail by moving tomatoes up to the top shelf. What does he do? Does he move all the ones that the colour of can that his mother preferred from the middle shelf to the top shelf? Yeah, he takes everything of the variety that she wanted because his dad says something along the lines of, oh, what about this tomato? And somebody says, no, not that one. So every can of the particular variety that she wants is moved to the top shelf that forces him to reach up and look at the camera. It's pleasant enough. It's a nice little butterfly effect that one simple thought of restacking the shelves, which is the same as the one simple movement of a can into a trolley, has the effect of the butterfly flapping its wings, creating the hurricane elsewhere. Although, in a way, it shows that he hasn't actually learned anything because he's still messing with stuff. Well, I mean, there is that. So what are you doing? You've just been told that if you change anything, you're going into another dimension, another timeline. You you know this is going to happen. It's a bit weird from the perspective that you're right. Normally, you expect a character to have learned a lesson at the end of a story, but it is very human. I want to save my parents. This should be fine. And I've not made it anywhere near as bigger change as the last one, so this one must be fine. It seems perfectly childish for the little boy who's desperate to get his parents back, but it's the sort of thing that you expect to see potentially in Act 2 as you say, because you expect him to have learned the lesson at the end of it. So I'm also going to call plot force on this one, actually, because they needed to set up their ending and all the other films they thought they were going to get 300 years ago. They just clung to it, I think. Unless nobody told them they were going to be cancelled. Maybe these poor writers have been stuck in a room for 300 years on the promise they were going to get six more films. Well, the Flash movie has gone through various iterations in terms of what was being promised. Remember when they did, I think it was the first DC fandom where they revealed some of the artwork and stuff like that. They talked about how The Flash was going to act as the reset for the DCU and it was going to set the tone for everything that was going to happen afterwards. Yeah. Which changed like a week later or something like that. You know how these things do. All these Star Wars projects that get announced to then get cancelled, for example. But we don't know that the writers were allowed out of their basement to see that change in that week. They might have been stuck in there, just kept delivering food. No, it's an apocalypse out here. You can't come out. (laughs) What do you need to save the world? We need more Flash films. So you stay down there and keep writing more Flash films. We need this one Flash film. It is Barry changing his future because the hearing is the next day from his present day perspective, whereas before he changed his past. But he also just learned how catastrophic one simple change can be. And he is a time traveller now, so he has no idea what he's doing to the future. He has some idea, well, he has a lot of idea of what he did to the intervening years. But what if something horrible happens in the next 30 years because of him moving the tomatoes from the bottom shelf to the top shelf? Indeed, yeah. So it is actually that he hasn't learned anything. Yeah, despite doing the spaghetti scene, they didn't do the traditional, these are the consequences of your choices. They just said, you've made a mess of the multiverse. It sounded like he made it untidy, rather than pointing out, ah, these 8 billion people no longer exist because of you. Do you have the right to do that? That's what you normally get. And they either didn't have time for that, or they skipped over that whole moral conversation that is usually had in a quiet moment. So it's kind of weird. Possibly the writers just left that out on purpose, because it it wasn't what they needed. Yeah, he's effectively changing his present by changing that thing in the past. So the effect of it isn't, from his perspective, immediate. Back to the Future is mentioned in this film. At the end of Back to the Future 2, the doc ends up in the 1800s and sends a letter to Marty that he receives the second after the doc disappears. 
It's a bit like that, isn't it? Although it's really weird. They keep using Back to the Future as their reference point, despite the fact that the Back to the Future rules, as Michael Keaton points out, are completely wrong in this universe's multiverse's even physics. Maybe not that version of Back to the Future. Didn't they say something like, are you thinking about this timeline and just branching off? Didn't he do that with the spaghetti? And he says, you're thinking that this is true. In fact... It's weak spaghetti, and he drops it in. So they explicitly say Back to the Future's rules are wrong, and yet most of the film, they keep making Back to the Future references. They say that our Back to the Future is wrong, the version that we understand. Maybe the Eric Stoltz version is the same, except that Eric Stoltz was in it. I don't know. I suppose I assumed that, actually. I assumed that it was just the actor that had changed, because that's what I was in theory seeing with my Batman. It was the actor who was changed. Whereas... The description that was given seemed to imply that it would be more than that. And makes me wonder, so hang on, what were the rules that, what do I even call him, Doc Green must have given (laughs) to describe what was going on there? I don't know. I'm not sure, actually, now if it was a good idea or a bad idea. I've just talked myself into a loop. (laughs) It felt weird to use Back to the Future as a reference without in any way establishing what that reference is actually meant for this plot it was just a reference to a famous time travel film that we're almost thinking is too old for some of the audience to have even watched well for those in the know they will know that eric stoltz was marty mcfly for a couple of days or whatever before they decided that michael j fox was better how many people in the audience of the flash are going to have any idea about that probably about as many people know about michael keaton being batman this is what I'm saying. It seems like such a strange reference for that reason. Too old a reference, probably. But I think of the Back to the Future 2 thing, because it is you put an element in place that will then only become relevant in your present day. Mm. So it doesn't change anything in the time in between that past event and the present day, relative to the character experiencing it, of course. So I guess Barry convinced himself that it was okay. But he just spent the entire film learning that you can't predict what your smallest change will do. Or as you say, not learning that, yeah. He's a lot like his TV counterpart in that respect. Constantly learning the same thing over and over again and failing to let it sink in. Well, yeah, disappointing. But it gets his dad out of prison, which seems fine for now. What's going to happen? He learns that George Clooney is now Batman instead of Ben Affleck or Michael Keaton, which is... Again, a reference that a lot of people won't understand. It will be a niche thing at this point. And the film's rules already told us that the timeline he'd be returning to wouldn't be his original one anyway. Mm. Because that's what Michael Keaton said. When you time travel, you're on a completely different strand of spaghetti. So it's established that he just couldn't get back to where he came from. Obviously, it's done as a joke. It is. I mean, how many people look back on Batman and Robin saying, yeah, that was the best of that film series we really preferred all of that the three before it were just rubbish by comparison i didn't mind batman and robin actually if you treat it like a superhero spoof comedy it works okay i'll give you that i can't challenge superhero spoof comedy <laughs> that's quite a good description of it but whether it's the one of the four that people remember most fondly i'm still not sure it's one that's popular to hate on as well so they're putting that joke in haha you've got the worst batman in this universe now is what that the film is trying to say. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that one. This change would have been done like the last minute. But what I'm wondering is if this had given birth to the DCU as it is, does that mean that George Clooney would be the Batman in the Brave and the Bold movie? Nice. I don't think that's going to be the case. 
I'm not expecting that. No. The annoying thing about that cameo for me actually was there was a rumor years ago, probably, that Barry would end up in the George Clooney universe at the end of the film. And I never forgot about that rumor for some reason. Oh, right. And then I heard the voice come through the phone and they didn't distort it enough. And I was like, that's not Ben Affleck. And they're like, oh no, they've done it. <laughs> but apparently there's four versions of that courthouse scene. I've seen stills of other ones, yeah. Cara and Michael Keaton is one of them. Keaton and Henry Cavill might be another. Yeah, that was one of them. There's a picture of them all standing on the steps together, yeah. They didn't know what this film was going to be until very much the last minute. In fact, when they screened it at CinemaCon, the critics that were in attendance weren't allowed to review it because they hadn't seen the final version of the film. <laughs> it just speaks of utter pointlessness. It really <laughs> does. Here's a random film. It's not the film. It's just a film. They might as well have just played The Sound of Music. <laughs> This film that's out in less than a month, we're still working on it. And yeah. we've been working on it for about a decade. But we're nearly finished, honest. So I imagine the George Clooney cameo wasn't present in that one. I don't know what was. I never found out. Maybe online somewhere. But like you say, there's possibly stills out there of other people standing around. I guess would all be all it would be. Yeah. But another theme we got in here, and it's one that I noticed when I was thinking about it in relation to Spider-Verse, actually. You haven't seen Across the Spider-Verse yet, have you? No, not yet. I'm not going to spoil it, but in that film they do address the whole notion of canon and what is quote-unquote supposed to happen to given characters. So in terms of the Spider-Man archetype is supposed to have certain foundational events in their development that shape them. And those are supposedly non-negotiable. They have to happen. Otherwise, bad things will happen. And that creeps in here a little bit. Although I suspect it's an accidental coincidence rather than actually intentional to copy the other thing. There's some mention of the way that some things are supposed to happen. The fact that a Batman exists at all suggests that there's some kind of universal constant there. Barry points it out that he once had an Alfred, just like his Bruce does. So there's a connection there. He even mentions something about fate. It's the only way to explain these things. I've never really understood this concept, actually. You see it in both the big houses. You've got your nexus events and nexus beings in Marvel. And now you've got this idea of fate and destiny coming in. And I do understand the concept of fate and destiny better. But usually when you see fate and destiny, it comes from some sort of religious foundation. And they try to make it scientific in Marvel by making it a nexus being a nexus event. It's something to do with the power. It's something to do with chaos magic. It's something to do with some form, some energy that is fundamental to the universe, and that gives you a science part. But when you see it just randomly put in, this is part of who you are, what are you doing with that? What's the purpose of it? It sounds metaphysical and important and spiritual and divine, but there is no divinity in this film. There is nothing spiritual about it, so you're only left with identity. Are you saying that Barry's identity is somehow written into his electrons and protons? That's not very scientific either, or you don't do anything scientific with it. So I don't understand what that's about. Is it just a way of getting faux spirituality into this to imply meaning? Because I think that's the most it can do, and that's not really impressive to me. Well, the film doesn't bother interrogating it in any way. It just mentions no. it and then it moves on. But what was the writer's intention? Yeah, this is what I'm thinking. I'm not convinced that the writers had an intention beyond a faux spirituality at best. Whereas in contrast, Across the Spider-Verse actually makes interrogating that a big part of its plot. It's the idea of one person says, 
all spiders are supposed to experience these fundamental events that shape them, these tragedies. And then the film counters that with, do they? Is that true? And it explores it, whereas this film doesn't. It's just, oh, it's weird that you're Bruce Wayne, also Batman, and you had an Alfred. And I know a Bruce Wayne that was also Batman who had an Alfred. That must mean the universe is sentient in some way and putting all these pieces together. Funnily enough, it's the same guff that one of the writers of the 2009 Star Trek movie came up with. Why are all these people on the same ship in a completely different universe and timeline mm-hmm. to the previous one? Oh, well, the universe detected that something went wrong and it's pushing all these pieces back where they're supposed to be. Self-correcting. It was actually a line that was removed from the film, but right. it was added into an episode of Strange New Worlds. So Star Trek canon is the universe knows how the Star Trek universe is supposed to play out and it makes sure it happens when things change. Well, I've long railed against that, actually, in, in certainly in some previous podcasts. When I see people writing science fiction don't seem to be comfortable adding mysteriousness in and they have to bring in spirituality and magic back because it's the only way they can somehow hide information from the audience and then have their reveal at the end. And you're thinking, have you not watched any spy thrillers? Because spy thrillers can hide information very easily. And then there's a big reveal at the end where somebody knew something and kept it from everybody else. And then everybody has to run in the other direction. And people like watching spy thrillers. So we know it works. But somehow in science fiction, in order to have mystery, no, we need to bring magic back in. Oh my God, no. If you want to write magic, write fantasy, do it right. So it feels like it's the same here. You're not quite sure how to put in powerful human moments without bringing in that religious angle. And I say that on purpose, actually, because I'm sure a lot of people say, no, no, we've not brought religion into this. And you want to say, what do you think an unexplainable ideology is? Break that down for yourself a bit. It's just a shame to use that crutch, because like I say, spy thriller, it's not needed, but it's a go-to. Somehow it's a go-to. Well, magic does exist in this universe, don't forget. Wonder Woman's there. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose there is that. So maybe they were trying to bring it into the old gods and powers. In fact, I don't think that Barry searched hard enough for Wonder Woman when he was Googling for the Justice League. (laughs) He searches for Wonder Woman to get some Vegas magic act or something like that. You know her name. Try that. Yeah. Try and find Themyscira in some way. I don't know. You could give it a go more than the Googling that you actually did. Because it's possible that the... Amazonians do exist. I would like to pose the possibility that his keyboard was unable to use the letters in that order (laughs) because the very physics was being controlled by a certain plot force. I'm afraid (laughs) typing those letters in that order is impossible in that universe. It just stood out to me that the whole fake thing was brought up and the idea of, well, there are certain connections that we can make even though everything's supposedly different. And I was just thinking, well, Spider-Verse actually made that a story. And this film mentions it and then moves on. It's just very weird that both films have it in there, but approach it very differently. As in one approaches it as a story, the other doesn't approach it at all. Yeah, well, that's it. It's a little throwaway that just lands in position. Yeah, but I quite like the idea of superhero media and franchise media interrogating the own concept of canon, actually. Because you have so many arguments in fandoms around what's quote-unquote supposed to happen. And they're kind of sickening because people have these very rigid ideas of what things are supposed to be. 
Spider-Man's origin, for example. If I don't see Uncle Ben get shot, something's going wrong. It's not my Spider-Man, that kind of stuff. And mm. fun enough, Spider-Verse is tackling that head on. The villain is the canon police, actually. <laughs> it's that toxic element of the fandom that can't accept anything that's different, but complain when it's all the same at the same time. It makes me a bit nervous, actually. I don't agree with that part of the fandom, but going for your audience is always risky. Well, I mean, there's ways to do it, and then there's ways to not do it. For example, She-Hulk directly attacking the audience. They still want to watch the show, but the way Spider-Verse does it, it's encouraging you to think about it in a different way. If it's a debate, then fair enough. Yeah. There shouldn't be any problem with debating both sides of an argument in a story. Well, again, without... Spoiling it, and across the Spider-Verse, the debate isn't resolved. They'll do it in the next film. Right. So it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that after you've seen it. Mm, yeah. Whenever it drops on digital or Blu-ray or whatever you want to watch it on. It'll be out imminently. Nothing takes long these days. Pretty much. But certainly the, the idea was there, and I noticed it, so I thought I'd remark on it, even though there's nothing to really say about it because the film doesn't do anything with it. Not even to the point where it's, it's fate a thing that exists. I don't know. Because it's okay if characters not know things. In fact, part of this is about Barry not understanding how all this works. Being in over his head, being overwhelmed by the fact that he is making changes to the timeline. He doesn't know what forces he's playing with. So it could have been a, hang on, you did this without knowing any of this stuff? Without looking into any of this stuff? You're an idiot. Well, I mean, it would come back to the same things I've said about some other elements of this, though. I would have preferred to have seen it layered into the film rather than just rammed at the end. Yeah, and there was another idea that I saw mentioned somewhere else. It's in relation to the Ben Affleck Bruce Wayne, basically saying to Barry, your mother being dead is the cause of who you are now, and the fact that you're a hero and stuff is because of that. Just like because my parents got shot and I became Batman, and he's regretful in that moment as well. He says, and I ended up alone, which causes Barry to say, we could hang out, we could be friends, which is kind of weird that Bruce Wayne's best friend is Barry Allen, but I suppose that's kind of the joke, isn't it? The idea that He's so alone that his best friend is this young guy that probably irritates him in some way. But the notion that was posited is that this is a billionaire telling a young person not to use their skills and abilities to make the world a better place. And I think, just like any other thing, the film doesn't really play with that debate in any way. But I found it quite an interesting point of view because it does recognise the world outside the film. As in, in the world we live in, we have billionaires telling us to leave things as they are because it works for them, which you could see as Bruce doing there. You could. I just find that so ungenerous and so mean-spirited because it requires you to drop so much of the nuance of the two characters in order to get the politics that you want. Because you never see Bruce as somebody who is the billionaire who's trying to keep the financial world order. And the only reason that works is because on paper he is a billionaire. If you in any way start to interrogate the person's personalities, then it comes away from the politics that the person is describing. So I'm afraid to me, it sounds like somebody's trying to score a political point or say something clever, but they are purposefully ignoring the full detail of the circumstance because it doesn't fit what they want. It reminded me of Sherlock Holmes when you said it, the famous line, you should bend your theories to fit the facts. Don't bend the facts to fit your theories. And so I'm not on board with it. It's not that I can't see the person drawing the lines. I can. But as I say, with that Sherlock Holmes 
quote in mind that I have butchered, but hopefully you get what I'm trying to say. I think you have to make too many compromises to get to what they're trying to prove. Like I say, it's not in the film. It's what we would call a hot take Yeah, that people say to get attention and, in fairness, generate a bit of discussion, actually. It's not completely without merit as an idea, especially in the context of the world we currently live in. I mean, how many times have we come out of the cinema and there's one particular person that ends up being at these screenings who just drops some random unsubstantiated statement in order to get a reaction out of us? It's like that. Well, if the person was trying to posit a theory to generate discussion, then it comes with no purpose in sociopolitics and you've got to start a discussion somewhere so that seed is as good as any i think i don't trust the internet to be that innocent no yeah fair enough and obviously you can take from it what you want to take from it like i took it as something that we could talk about oh yeah well in that sense you are correct we talked about it we did discuss yeah fair enough i do think it's an interesting idea in a vacuum if the only trait you attribute to bruce wayne is billionaire and well this film doesn't really tell you much about bruce wayne as a character this version anyway, or the other one, but certainly this one. So you don't really know what his stance on his financial situation is or how he views the global economy and all that stuff. He does make the comment when he's touching the lasso of truth that he'd probably be better off spending his money to help people rather than dressing up in armoured bat suits and beating the crap out of people. Even that is just a gag because you have to work with the idea that in reality... If there wasn't some value in dressing up in armoured suits and challenging people, then logically he wouldn't be doing it. He's not doing it for fun. He tells you that himself. He's lonely. He's miserable. He is only doing this through some sense of duty. So the idea that this character thinks that his vigilantism is utterly pointless doesn't make sense. But it doesn't need to because it's just a silly joke. Like you said, it's not in any way as useful to the plot or meaningful as the original one with Aquaman. That one actually does something useful. This one is just, forget your character, forget all the past. We think it's a joke time. How can we have a joke? Here we go. And now we all move on. No consequence, no thought to it. It's just a throwaway nonsense. So no, I I didn't even like that. I remember thinking at the time, that wasn't funny. It technically qualifies as a joke, but it was no Aquaman. It was not that. Yeah, it's not the best use of the last of truth we've had. Yeah. And this film does tell you that Bruce's mission has value because you see a version of him that's one as well. He talks about <laughs> Gotham as one of the safest places in the world or the US or wherever. Yeah, who'd have thought that was possible? <laughs> he doesn't explain how he managed to do it. Maybe he just murdered no. everybody that was bad because Michael Keaton's Batman. Doesn't have a problem with killing. Neither does Affleck, to be fair. He was happily machine-gunning people in Batman v Superman. So they have that in common, I guess. But I thought the idea was interesting because, well, it does loop in the whole idea of trauma and how defining that is. And this whole thing about superheroes, they have some kind of horrible thing happen to them and that ends up fueling their motivation to continue. And it's in that canon thing again, as in why do these things have to happen to these people? Well, Barry's entire setup in this film is about does my mum have to die do i have to deal with that pain does bruce have to deal with that pain what happens if i save his parents he doesn't do that but i think there's a a wider question that it's driving at about who says these things have to happen to us and i guess that's 
almost a playing God problem, isn't it? The interesting thing is, if you do want to bring up these questions, then you can have a very meaningful and intellectual film. You're going to have to make a lot of effort to put it in your plot such that you really do debate it backwards and forwards. Because if you just cheaply put something in and say, ha 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 ha, I have asked a big question, aren't I clever? I think the audience is going to say, no, you're not clever. You just said that to look clever, and any of us can see that. Yeah, it's a common thing in time travel stories as well. The idea of these events end up shaping the people that you are, and then without them, you're different people, and possibly not better people as a result. So who would Bruce Wayne be if his parents didn't get shot? Probably a spoiled, entitled billionaire. Yeah, this is it. This storyline is usually done as an investigation of the human experience in that... People want to know why. Everybody's always asked, why? Why am I the way I am? Why have I been through what I have? Where's the meaning in this? And equally, trying to tackle the idea that you can't time travel. Usually, time travel is brought up in story as a way of examining the fact that you cannot time travel. It sounds perverse, but In order to come to some acceptance that you are who you are, you cannot go back and relive your childhood as much as you would love to and make yourself a better person. You really need to get used to the idea that you can't, and you have to accept it. And part of the human condition is that acceptance. That's what you're normally seeing in time travel stories, going back to the time machine. The time machine is one of the original investigations of this. No matter how often he goes back, he cannot save his wife. It's just not going to happen. By the way, spoilers for the time machine. Really sorry. Sorry, it's too late. But he has to use time travel to realize that he cannot change time. So it sounds perverse, but that's what you're normally trying to do. And that's a really important lesson for humans to learn, because if you spend all your life wishing that you could make it different in the past, you destroy your future. And there's your metaphorical time traveling. You are just time traveling into your own future because you did nothing with your present. So that's where you're normally expected to see these things. And I wouldn't have minded seeing a bit of that in here, But it's almost like we're going to bring it up and sort of chat around it, but then we're just not going to do it. And at that loss of meaning, you feel like you wanted it to be replaced with some other meaning. I think I struggle to see what that was here. If all they do is mention fate, they didn't bring anything as big and powerful into it. There's also the selfishness angle as well. Barry fixes his life and in turn breaks the universe. Well, yeah. It's an examination of the importance of everyone else when weighed up against yourself. So he has a really great childhood where he has both parents, but the end result is the world ends because Zod shows up and there's no one there to stop him. You've seen so many time travel stories where they've made a mess of things and they understand that I can't just be thinking about myself here. The timeline was better the way it was. And I just have to deal with the fact that I lose something as a result of it. That's one of the older ones. Also, Back to the Future again, referenced. It all turns out really well for Marty McFly, because he returns at the end of the first film. His parents are rich, and their parents' bully is subservient to them. So Marty McFly returns to a pretty sweet deal, and he's changed everything. Yeah, he does get to change the past. But nobody really ever said that Back to the Future was trying to investigate the human condition in the same way. What's well, seen as a happy ending. Yeah. You're back to your family, but they're a better family. Yes. Yeah, he gets the win. Yeah, totally. But you don't know these people, actually. They're completely different people. Yes. These are not your mother and father. Because the ones you know were 
alcoholic losers or whatever. No, plus the Marty McFly that did grow up with them, presumably you've wiped him from existence. That's just cruel. But let's not look at that. Moving on. (laughs) I guess the thing this film doesn't interrogate at all is whether Barry 1 is an artifact that will be erased at some point. Because he doesn't belong to that timeline. Well, no, but that's what I mean by it's weird to see them using Back to the Future references without setting up a framework of rules that they then use. They reference it because it's cool, but not with great purpose. It gives you a few jokes and you move on. It is weird to see something that, here are the rules we're going to follow, is probably about two minutes. And then we just forget about it and move on. It's just not a thing at all. Well, we've seen better time travel stories that use these other films as shorthand, as in, what are the rules? Terminator or Back to the Future? And then someone was like, Terminator, and got it. I understand how time travel works now. And then we move on. Yeah, brilliant. Of course, that only works if your audience understand the Terminator rules. Yeah, normally that was done closer to those two films coming out so that they were good references. The further away we go from them, the less that is useful now. Your modern audience is going to need other frames of reference. Oh, well, too bad you don't have any. Sorry, moving on. Well, I think the financial performance of this film shows that they completely misjudged people's grasp of nostalgia. Maybe. Because the Michael Keaton appearance meant nothing to most people. It didn't get people into the theatres to watch it. Even when you consider it what its budget was, if you throw that out, it still did not make very much money on its opening weekend. And then it dropped by like 70% a week later. That's more interesting to me to see it by ticket sales, like I said earlier. If I know it didn't work on numbers of tickets sold, then right, fair enough. Yeah, it sounds like it hasn't done well. Yeah. And I think it fails on a critical level in some fundamental ways. Even just as a time travel story, it doesn't deliver a decent thesis on what it's trying to say. Because it keeps changing what it's trying to say about time travel. It never lands on anything. Well, yeah, so I mean, they don't set up rules. It's a bad thing, but also a good thing because he gets his dad out of jail at the end. Well, that also means that they've not settled on a moral story either. So it's not a time travel story. It's not an investigation into what it means to not be able to change your past. It's not a moral story. What is it? You are left with that at the end, I think. Because of that third act, you are left with that. You're not really sure what to feel because you've not been led in any direction. Yeah. Well, what I will say is, this is part of the third act as well. It just comes after the action sequence. I thought the emotional climax of the film was very well done, where he gets to, as an adult, interact with his mother and get that final moment with her. And the fact is, she's purposely stripped back to exactly as he remembers her for that scene as well. I've criticised other things for removing nuance from characters when they travel back in time. For example, in the final season of The Flash, there's an episode where Barry ends up back at the night his mother was killed for the, I don't know, 15th time or whatever. There's an elaborate queuing system outside the house now. Yes. For all the versions of Barry that are waiting to witness the event. Hundreds of them hiding in cupboards and not wanting to be seen and what have you. It's a really busy house. They've put on snacks. It's quite an event. But anyway, when he interacts with his parents in that episode in the past, they're saints. They have no flaws whatsoever. They don't come across as people. He doesn't learn anything about them he didn't already know. It's a completely pointless exchange because all he's seeing is this memory of them that he had, which we've had before in the show, and you shouldn't have them interact for an extended period of time unless you're going to give us something that we haven't had before. But in this, it was exactly the point. He goes back in time to the day she was killed, or maybe the day before she was killed, I'm not sure. She just forgets when they go shopping, whether it was earlier that day or the day before, I don't know. doesn't matter. But anyway, he goes back in time to that moment and... He gets to interact with her exactly as he remembered her. This compassionate, loving person 
who gives him emotional support just because he's someone that looks like he could use it. And I thought that was a really powerful moment, actually. The idea that, yeah, he did get that closure, but not in the way that he thought he was going to get it. I have to admit, I'd forgotten that part of the third act when I was talking earlier. Because <laughs> you're right, it is a nice moment. It is well done. It's uniquely well-crafted. And I do wonder if that is also evidence of this idea of there was a script at the beginning that was then trampled somehow. But I'll, I'll agree, it, it was emotional. It was nicely played by the two actors and it did show you something of the character of the mother, and it was nicely played out. It's not as powerful for me because the film isn't building towards it. It has its strength in the moment, and all of us, I think, can empathize with parent and or child. So it has emotional strength because we're all going to be able to have that emotion inside of us. But I would say it's still a shame for that scene that it doesn't have the weight of the rest of the film really driving you to this point. It's good because it itself is good by itself, which is laudable. But I would say that it would have been even more powerful if it had been the climax to the film rather than the scene at the end of the film. Yeah, the film almost should have ended there. We're pretty close to there. Instead of, we've still got the thing about his dad's hearing to deal with. Well, you know, we have to always end on on a joke. You can't possibly be feeling upset or sad for long. We have to immediately cut that and bring in the humour. Well, it actually reminded me of the similar scene in the end of the first season of The Flash. The first time he's there, the night his mother died, and he gets to reassure her as she's lying dying in his arms. It's a similar beats, but it's, it's not exactly the same, of course. Well, it's the same source material, I suppose. Yeah, but the idea is he's getting that final moment Aye. that he was robbed of in the past. Yeah. And that's why it's powerful. It could have been a strong emotional climax if that was the emotional climax. Yes. When the film remembers it's supposed to be about him never getting over that loss, it can be really good. When it does that distinction between the two Barrys, one which had a mother growing up, one that didn't, the little differences were quite interesting, such as the childhood toy, the monkey. Yeah, meaningful to one. Just a pile of fluff to the other. Yeah, and when he's confronted about it, he says, what, she buys us monkey stuff all the time? Because she calls yeah. it monkey. Yeah, but I only have this one. Yes. And you throw darts at it. That's offensive to me. You were talking about understandable human reactions to stuff. Yes, yes. That's one. That really works. And then you have the whole nonsense about he overhears him talking to Bruce about the fact that his mother died. And then they do kind of nothing with it until later where he says, oh yeah, I know that mum died, by the way. Like, okay. But it didn't inform anything you were doing after this. Because you didn't go assuming that Barry wanted to put that right. It's a decision he makes quite late on that, oh no, I have to make sure she dies. Otherwise, I've broken the universe. Again, this is what the film's supposed to be about. That original script, as I've proposed, as I say, I don't know, but proposed. Yeah, this mythical original script that may or may not have ever existed is one Barry that suffers that loss, one Barry that doesn't, the realisation from Barry 1 that in order to fix the universe, he can't be selfish and has to let that tragic event play out. Yeah. And Barry 2 resents that because he doesn't want to lose his mother after living with her for 18 years. Fair enough. And there you have a conflict. That is enough to create an evil flash. Yeah, they could have battled for a bit, even if that wasn't the 
end point, they still could have battled throughout Act 2 for that. Yeah, so wasted opportunity. But it was a very good scene, and it's something that exists in isolation. It's a relic of a better film, I guess. I would agree with that. It's an isolated moment, yeah. As contrived as it is where she says to a random stranger, would you like a hug, even though you don't know me? And he's like, yeah, sure. I mean, there are nice people out there who do see somebody in total distress and want to help. So I find that believable. Yeah, she's just that sort of person. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a good scene. It hit the right beats. And mentioned earlier that people criticise Ezra Miller's performance in this. I don't see how you could watch that scene and say that there was a bad performance. I did not see a bad performance. I saw a good performance. I'm not convinced I saw a great script, Yes, but I saw a good performance. And the thing of it is, I'm sure I mentioned earlier, it may have been offline, I don't know, but it's in here now. I think people are conflating their opinion of the character of Barry with the performance of Ezra Miller. So as in, they find Barry annoying and insufferable as a character and are therefore saying that Ezra Miller performs badly for that reason. Yeah, you said that at the start, and I, I did agree. If you're going to say, I don't like to watch annoying characters, okay, well, don't watch the film then, because it's about somebody changing and putting aside some negative things and growing and becoming more positive. So, yeah, you can't watch it. I always found that quite hilarious about The Labyrinth, if you know The Labyrinth. The David Bowie one. Yeah, certainly big in gaming circles. And you meet quite a lot of gamers who say, oh, I can't watch The Labyrinth. Jennifer Connors' character is just so annoying and she's a spoiled brat. Yeah, that's the point. She learns not to be a spoiled brat. That's the whole film. It's just weird how people just seem to miss the point about what the film is trying to do. So, well, yeah, if you don't want to watch that, then yeah, just don't watch that film. Yeah. You find this annoying to look at, but you can't say that the actor did a bad job. No, not at all. And I think people should appreciate the difference more. Well, there's this argument about the fact that people stop watching TV shows because they don't like any of the characters, as in they find them all unlikable, when the point of the show is perhaps that they are supposed to be unlikable. Well, I think that's true, but I actually stand by the thing. I've said that myself. I can't watch a show because I find everybody unlikable. But you know what I do? I just don't watch the show. It's an easy choice. I was talking to Laura, my partner, about this for Indiana Jones, because I was saying, did you watch Fleabag? And she said, no, I couldn't watch it. I know the main character is called Fleabag for a reason, but she then described how the character starts out awful, remains awful, and the idea that bad things happen is not an excuse for you to go around being awful to other people. But she never at once said, and I think that makes it inhuman or the character was wrong. She just said, because the character is this awful, she felt she didn't want to watch the TV show anymore. And I think, well, yeah, that's perfectly reasonable. But at no point did either of us say, oh, Fleabag was poorly written, just wasn't something that we wanted to see. So I think that's a valid reason to not watch but i agree you can't say therefore it is bad art it is bad literature whatever well yeah there's plenty of things i can't watch because i find all the characters unwatchable there's things about them i just can't engage with but i do understand that you can engage with material when you're not supposed to like anybody succession for example a show i haven't watched but that's really popular and everyone in that is awful. Presumably, it's the same thing. Either they get their comeuppance or they change and become good. There'll be some progress that has that as a starting point. Or the point is that the world isn't fair and these people will continue to succeed despite how awful they are. Well, fair enough. If you want to make realistic, yeah, fine, okay. You could build your entire premise on just, you're going to watch this out of some bizarre nihilism. That's true. That is an emotion. Yeah, fair enough. 
You want to have your opinion about the world you live in validated by showing all these awful people continuing to succeed and thrive. Well, yeah, why not? But that's not the case here. I don't think that Barry is an awful person at any point. It's just, I can understand why people might find him too annoying. Well, exactly. And I, as I said at the start, I can understand if people did not like this version of The Flash because it's not the Flash that they wanted to see. That doesn't mean it's an invalid story, but that makes sense to me. If Flash is your favorite character and you really like what you've seen before as The Flash, then yeah, this film is not for you. You just don't watch it. It's an iteration that you can skip and you can go on to the next Flash. Yeah, and you'd have some idea based on seeing them in the other kind of connected films as well. Yeah, if you didn't like the portrayal of The Flash in the previous films, probably skip this one. Just don't watch it. So that's us pretty much torn this to pieces. It's the end of the DCEU, as it became known, the DC Expanded Universe. Mm. Whether intentional or not, do you think we should just let it go and start again? Are you happy with the fact that we're getting a restart? I think it's a good thing that superhero films are getting a restart because the quality of the films we're seeing has dropped so low, we need a refresh if we are going to watch any more. I'm happy to commit to that even though it sounds like I'm dodging your question, because (laughs) I think that is the benefit that I can see. Am I happy to leave this behind? I've not been happy to see the end of the darker, grittier stuff that I was first given with Henry Cavill Superman, as I said earlier, trying to tackle international terrorism. That was something I'd not seen before. It was something I was really interested in. And I do like those darker, heavy emotion plots. And I don't think I'm going to see it again because I'm massively outnumbered and people didn't want to see it. They wanted lighter, happier films. Whether that's because, as you were alluding to earlier, that we've been educated by Marvel to want a certain thing, or whether the DC producers said, but I like infinite money and Marvel is making infinite money. I want to make infinite money. And therefore... It just had to be changed. I don't know the full truth of why I cannot have the one I wanted, but I just can't. It's not viable at this time. And maybe in the future it will be. So I would love to go back to that and see that side of things interrogated a bit more somehow. So I think I've already lost what I wanted from these films. And that was a long time ago and I was never going to get it back. So I'm I'm a bit ambivalent to the current state of the DCEU because it had already been, well, to be perfectly honest, it had been put through the washer and the dryer, put out to hang for a bit, put back in the washer, and nobody knew what they were doing with it. Where is it clean? Is it dirty? Who knows? We don't know what we're doing anymore. Just keep doing stuff. Hope for the best. Funny that we're talking about the end and we've not acknowledged Aquaman, but to be honest, <laughs> the hope is not great, it has to be said. But yeah, I guess I'm not happy and I'm, I'm not looking forward to James Gunn's work. I know it's going to be the best opportunity to continue superhero stuff and I want James Gunn to succeed for that reason because if he doesn't, it's gone. But I'm not looking forward to it. And I feel like the thing I wanted was taken off me a a long time ago and and I don't see a way I can have it back. I was on board with, let's call it the Snyderverse for simplicity, even though it probably wouldn't have been him doing everything. But Man of Steel was made. It was a decent first outing for what was supposed to be a connected universe. And then they were reactive to some loud minority feedback 
on the back of that. We talked about it earlier. The, there's too much property damage, etc., etc. So they started to change these things as they were being made. Batman v Superman suffered some changes, less so than Justice League would end up doing. But the, I think the problem with it was they never stuck to their guns. They only made one film that was supposed to be the film that it was, well, supposed to be. Unless you count the Snyder Cut, which I count as a completely new project anyway, because, well, they shot new stuff for it. So it wasn't the original film anyway. No. And it would have never been four hours in the cinema. (laughs) It would have been edited down to three, probably. You might have got the four hours on Blu-ray later on, I don't know. Maybe. But anyway, it it wouldn't have been that. So I really wanted them to stick to their guns, but I also wanted them to play up with contrast a bit more. I think in Batman v Superman, they failed to define Superman as heavily as they could. And the whole idea of you put Batman in conflict with Superman is that they have some kind of ideological clash as well. Yeah. Which doesn't really come through. And the the idea of Superman's the Boy Scout, Batman's the Dark Knight, those are inherently oil and water, aren't they? That's done for a reason, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they'll find a way to work together. If they were going to go down the original planned route, I would have been interested to see how that developed. Because people were talking about, don't like Henry Cavill Superman because he's not Christopher Reeve. And it's, well, he shouldn't be because we had that. And every actor should have the opportunity to put their own stamp on the character. Yeah. Tyler Hecklin got to with his version that's on TV, for example. Henry Cavill should have instead of being forced into a Christopher Reeve-esque skin for particularly Justice League, the Joss Whedon version. Snyder wasn't interested in him in his own version of Justice League at all. He's a blunt instrument. He shows up to provide muscle at a later point, which is, again, an underutilisation of the character. So I would have liked to see more of this beacon of hope Superman in a world that's very cynical, which you got shades off, but it wasn't quite there. And then the other characters, similarly... Let the tone surround them, like they did in early Marvel films. Every solo film had its own unique flavour. Yeah. And then you brought them all together, and the purpose of bringing them all together was to show how volatile a mix that was. Justice League could have been that, but they didn't do that. So, yeah, I still think there was the opportunity for variety in there. You could have still had the Shazams and so on in the mix in there. But it was also muddled and messy. And as long as James Gunn has a vision that's good and he's allowed to stick to said vision, we might be on a winner here. We might be on something that builds organically because it's playing out as was intended. Obviously, things will change based on audience reactions to different things. That's inevitable. We don't like this element or we really like this element. Give us more of that. That will inevitably happen as they go on. There's always that push and pull between the audience and the people making the film. But not to the extent of, let's lock up all the civilians in a indestructible bunker because we can't have civilians threatened in a superhero film. That would be madness, wouldn't it? So I am looking forward to seeing what James Gunn has planned. I just would like to see something a bit consistent and something that we can just sit with for a little while. Something that isn't changing every five minutes. Because the biggest waste with the DCEU was... It started off with, we don't want to be Marvel, we're going to do our own thing. And then it's, oh no, we need to be more like Marvel. But that doesn't fit what you've set up. You set up something that's not Marvel, and now you're trying to tell me that it is Marvel. Which is why Superman changes personalities in the Justice League that Joss Whedon did, because they want a more quippy, Marvel-y type character. Yeah. And there's a place for that, and I would have liked to see Henry Cavill's Superman get there after a period of time, but they just don't let you do it. Sure, yeah. 
So it's, it's a bit of a mess. So yes, I do think we should let this go because it was never really done properly from the outset. So the fact that they kept it on life support and kept trying to force it into something was never going to work. And yes, this isn't the end because we still have Aquaman and James Gunn still at least telling us that Blue Beetle might be the first character in his universe. But maybe he's only saying that so that we'll go see it. That's the danger, isn't it, really? It's the same thing with Anchorman. Well, is Aquaman going to be set in the universe that this film ends in? Who knows? Or will it matter? Maybe they'll just refilm it this year and not tell anybody. Who knows? Because, obviously, Arthur shows up in the post credit scene where Barry's trying to explain something complicated to him while he's off his face, which is possibly not the best timing. I'm curious to see what James Gunn will do. He has his cast. He has Superman and Lois cast. Yeah. It's moving pretty quickly. One thing that worries me, though, is, and I know what you're going to say to counter this, it's all down to the marketing, but sometimes you can market something and people just aren't interested either anyway, because Superman will probably come out too soon after this for people to be convinced to be interested in it. Sometimes you do need to sit on it for a few years and wait until people miss it a bit, or you bring it back with a, oh yeah, okay, maybe we're willing to give this a go again. Something similar happened with Transformers. Bumblebee came out and nobody cared, even though it was really good, because after the Michael Bay's fifth film, just nobody cared anymore. And they didn't successfully explain why we should watch that after the last one. So that could happen here. That is a concern. Plus the fact that the takings are just so low for these at the moment as well. I'm not sure that the Superman film will be the triumphant return that it needs to be. And then... Are they going to go back to, let's change this in flight because that didn't work? The difficulty is that they can't give the audience a break because Marvel will keep going. Even if DC says we're having two years, three years, four years off, that'll be full of Marvel films. So they will never be able to have what you're suggesting. So they need to pick a different strategy. But imagine if Marvel continues on its current trajectory of releasing things that are at best mediocre. So people continue to lose interest in that, as has been happening. And then four years from now, five years from now, a Superman film comes out that has James Gunn's visual style attached to it. It looks like it has some kind of personality rather than being on this assembly line that Marvel are constantly accused of. And then suddenly you've got reinvigorated interest because, oh, look, we have a project that someone has actually put a lot of effort into. That could be enough. Whereas if it comes out in two years, it'll be, oh, it's a superhero film. We've got four of them this year. I can't be bothered. The last Marvel film sucked or whatever. I think we're in danger of that. We are. We've reached saturation point with blockbusters anyway. They are all flopping. Yeah. All of them. Indiana Jones is a complete failure financially. This is a complete failure financially. It's just people don't have any money to go to the cinema which is a problem. So I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know anything about Hollywood economics, but I think there is cause to be concerned about whether this will work. And it might be nothing to do with the quality of the project itself. It might have everything to do with people just don't want to watch it for other reasons. It's possible that he could create something that is really good and the opening box office is terrible because of the things you've described but word of mouth brings it back now i can't name the film that's done this but there was a film recently and it might not be a superhero one but i'm pretty sure that there's been an example of that in the last year where the film's revenue went up over time instead of down and it was exactly that nobody was expecting anything and word of mouth was like dude you have to see this film and it suddenly turned it around i honestly believe that is the best he can hope for 
and it would be a good thing for him if he did it because I cannot see him having a successful opening week. But if he's managed to create a good film and word of mouth goes round and the cinemas go, hang on a minute, we're making cash here. We like cash. They'll keep it in the cinema. And if the audiences keep going up, that will be invigorating. So I have the suspicion, it's not provable, it's not guaranteed, but I have the suspicion that you might get a success even if the opening weekend is terrible. It's still possible that that could happen because everybody will be going in and seeing how awesome it is and then that word will spread. So I think whatever happens, it'll be something like that. If it's successful, it'll be weirdly successful. It won't be normally successful. It'll be strangely successful, but that would open the door again. I hope he gets it. I really do because it's good for the genre for him to do it. Now, that doesn't really happen with franchise blockbusters you're probably talking about something that was relatively small in terms of budget and so on oh yeah but the fire swamp argument applies you're only saying that because it's never happened before it doesn't mean it cannot happen yeah i mean it can happen it's just in the current climate the blockbusters got a week to prove itself before it gets shoved out the door for the next one possibly less than a week actually in some cases but Still, it's the way it's happening. Although that bubble may have well and truly burst by then. It's not for us to worry about as such. We'll just watch it if and when it comes out. Because anything could happen over the next couple of years. Exactly. That's the thing. Yeah, I think that's us. I think we've torn this film to shreds, don't you? We've definitely done some damage. But in my investigation, I've been looking for this answer. It really hit with me. Black Widow, Multiverse of Badness, people are going to be fed up with me saying it. But I really just got lost in the idea of why does Craig like these films? And I think they're awful. And it's not just you. It's just that you're the person I speak to. So I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying that, unfortunately, you were there in my face at the time. How dare you enjoy this? But I just find it, why? Why is this likable? I don't think you're an idiot. That's not what I think. Therefore, I don't understand. And it started to dawn on me that this thing that people say is actually true. What a surprise. <laughs> the idea that there are multiple ways of enjoying a film, but I've not been able to express. This is the frustration. I've not been able to express what these multiple ways of enjoying a film are. And our systems don't help. You get a rating out of five. You get a four-star rating, a five-star rating. Implication being, this is absolutely a four-star film. The idea that an individual reviewer's four-star or five-star rating is, is actually not useful. Their description might be, but their rating is not useful. It's only useful when it goes on Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes and it gets averaged. And then you can get something whereby you can get, okay, now I'm starting to understand a percentage of the entire population likes this and what percentage is that so you can start to get maybe some more information out of it but even with that what is it that means that 23 percent of people like it and i can't even do the math 77 percent of people don't well the thing about rotten tomatoes is if something's certified fresh that just means that a higher percentage of critics that are allowed to contribute to the tomato meter rated it three stars or more so it doesn't really tell you anything no, but that's almost my point. I'm still not getting the data that I want. That's what I'm saying here. I'm not getting the information. I've been stuck here in frustration still, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> and one of the reasons I liked this film 
more than others, I think, is because of this information that's starting to come through to me. So I've established that why am I not enjoying some Marvel stuff? I want to see the through line. I want to see consistency. I want to see characters the same and building. And Marvel's not interested in that. I want to see these moments like Captain America speaking to the policeman and getting that human thrill out of it, that something believable and powerful happened. And for me, I think The Flash was a revelation to actually see some of those things that I like, even though I am happy to acknowledge the third act didn't work, even though I'm happy to acknowledge that it wasn't a great film overall because there was an original script, but it got hammered by these punches from some external force. Despite all that, I got to see Kara wreaking her vengeance on those mercenaries. That, for me, was the same as the Captain America moment. I really just enjoyed seeing a realistic, believable human moment. I got a lot out of that moment, more than perhaps I should have done. I enjoyed seeing Barry dealing with crazy Barry and the humor between them was good how he played off himself I have no idea but the humor between him and himself was good and his emotions as he's dealing with this annoying version of himself as he's trying to become better and this idiot is just dragging his very being through the mud him playing that out again it gives me more of these human moments these storage of moments these character moments that i'm personally wanting to see and it's weird therefore for me to have watched it in this film in which the overall script is crazy the two supporting characters are no more than sidekicks at best and yet if you look past all that yeah i got to see what i wanted to see So I enjoyed this film, and I think it was eye-opening. I think I'm starting to be able to vocalize more this idea of elements of a film that you can enjoy rather than the film as a singular entity. I'm nowhere near properly vocalizing it yet. I really don't think I can, but getting there. And The Flash really helped me with some good moments in it, despite what we've said. So I don't want to say we tore it apart. I think we tore apart the bits that were rubbish, but I do think that I saw some really personally enjoyable elements of storytelling. So you're a few steps further on your journey towards enlightenment then. Which is no doubt a million steps long. (laughs) We'll just keep going. Any progress is good progress. Exactly. I don't really have anything to add to that. I still think the film is a mess. I think parts of it work. I think parts of it don't. I think the end product is very ill-conceived. It's quite ugly in places. But it does have some merit in there. And it's really annoying that it has some merit in there when you see it squandered so routinely. So I guess the only thing we can say is do better than this (laughs) in the future. Just do better. Think about what you're making. Don't listen to arseholes on Twitter and don't let them dictate how your film or universe should go because they don't represent a huge chunk of your audience. They just don't. I mean, this film almost proves that. We want to see Michael Keaton. Turns out cinema audiences actually don't. They really don't. And that I mean, that's fine. Just do something else. Or find some better way to use nostalgia so you're not hanging your film on the fact that Michael Keaton's back as Batman. It could be the film where, oh, by the way, Michael Keaton's in it as Batman. That'll be fun. But that's not your hook. That's a bonus, yeah. Exactly. They weren't, at least initially, marketing Spider-Man No Way Home as the triple Spider-Man team-up, were they? No. They did everything not to do that, actually. 
They were marking it as a Spider-Man film and you want to go see this Spider-Man film. Of course, everything leaks anyway and that probably contributed to a lot of the interest, but still. Yeah. You were trying to encourage people to go to watch a film that you were making that you put some effort into. And I think that both of the big superhero powers need to get their head around that. They need to understand that. And they need to get back to the fundamentals. Yes. Which certainly James Gunn seems like he wants to do. I don't know if Marvel want to do that. I wonder if Kevin Feige is just convinced that they're on the right track and that people need to start enjoying it. We don't need to make our films better. People just need to stop hating them. Yes. Well, we will if you make good films. Not that they're all bad or anything, but you really need to step up. They all need to step up their game. I think blockbuster cinema in general needs to step up their game. We have a conversation about Dungeons & Dragons that may or may not be out by the time this is out, where we say that it's not the best film ever made, but in a landscape of underwhelming blockbusters, it really stands out as being way better than most of them. It's not really a situation you want to be in. You want to be in a situation where they're making good stuff, they're putting effort in. So yeah, that's a note to end on, I guess. So that was our conversation about the Flash movie, not to be confused with the Flash TV show. They're two different things, but we talked about both. I would like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also rate the podcast on most of your podcasting platforms. I'm going to check which universe I'm in by asking Aaron to tell me what number of stars they should give us i'm gonna have to stay with my original script universe and say that people should give us a number of stars in proportion to how much they enjoyed it i'm on the wrong strand of spaghetti then yeah well okay if you want to discuss the flash movie the flash tv show why not or anything else you can reach out to us on facebook and twitter under neil before blog or you can leave a comment under neilbeforeblog.co.uk and as always we hope you'll join us next time in whatever universe you're from on Neil Before Pot. Mm-hmm.